G'day legend, welcome to the Noob Spear podcast. It's interviews with people who froth on the spearfishing lifestyle from all over the planet. Today we're off to Indonesia to chat with Aquatic Apes Lenny Logsdale. This bloke has a huge YouTube channel, particularly in the incredibly small world of spearfishing. This bloke has amassed millions of subscribers and he's in a very, very interesting cat living in a very interesting part of the world. We're going to get to that interview where I tease out some tips and tricks to uh, grow your YouTube channel. Also, um, if you're interested in spearfishing Indonesia, Lenny's got a whole heap of actionable intel in that area. Before we get there, some news from around the traps. Trevor Ketchian, you might remember him from his YouTube channel, Submerged Psycho. He's, he's an absolute character. He's also one of my instructors on uh, our upcoming uh, intermediate spearfishing course held off Brisbane. Uh, alongside Tim McDonald and Tom Sandstrom, I've got an absolute talented team here to teach this intermediate course. It's going to be it's going to be epic. Anyway, Trevor is auctioning off a spot on this course. There's only three spots remaining, by the way. Uh, if you are interested, go to spearfishingcourses.com.au. But Trevor Ketchian, hit him up. He's got raffle tickets for $30 a ticket. And he all that money he's raising is going to the Inter-Pacific's uh, fundraiser, basically to send the Aussie team to New Zealand next year for a huge Inter-Pacific's competition. Uh, it's a fantastic initiative. Hit Trevor Ketchian up on Facebook. I'll link that up in today's show notes. If you go to noobspirit.com forward slash aquatic apes, you'll find Trevor's details in there. Also, around the traps, here we go. Uh, Tony left a review for a recent uh, spearfishing course he did off Shady with me. He says, my wife booked three days learning this to freedive spearfish with Isaac Daly, Shrek, didn't really know what to expect as I've never done this type of thing before. Was pleasantly surprised by the experience. Shrek, Bree and Tom were amazing. Learned a lot from them. The pace of the course was very good and covered a lot of information. Even a beginner could keep up, which was a credit to them and course and the course content. The overall team on the course made the experience even more enjoyable and memorable. Great locations as well. Would highly recommend this course to anyone wanting to learn freedive spearfishing and have some fun along the journey. Thank you. Hey, cheers, Tony. Thanks for that review. It's up on uh, Google if you want to check it out. Noob Spiro Spearfishing up there but if you want to check out a course again at uh, spearfishingcourses.com.au I've also got a woman's course coming up it's in February from the 22nd to the 25th 2024 it's taught by an all-female team uh, and there's 10 spots available there so again spearfishingcourses.com.au check that out also, guys, coming up right around the corner is the Kingfish Cup. Uh, it's held in the greater Sydney area, uh, about a 250-metre kilometre stretch of coastline, uh, weigh-in stations at Adreno, Sydney, Little Manly in Sydney Harbour, and Terrigal on the Central Coast. Uh, it's a fantastic competition. Check it out. The information night is on November 2nd. More details to come, but uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Also got a cracker review out of the US on Apple Podcasts. It says, this is the this show is the best I've ever listened to. I'm a noob Spiro and I've been listening for a few weeks now. Started from episode one and love to listen to Turbo and Shrek go at each other. Best part of my day. Thanks, guys, for all the great interviews and information. Uh, Jeepers, he's back in the he's back in the he's back in the archives there. Um, but anyway, awesome. I'm stoked he's enjoying it. Hey guys, let's get into today's interview. It's oh, actually, one more quick one. Tom Sandstrom, uh, his little brother is doing a run. Uh, check it out, Jack Max. He's at run. Run at run for the number four Eden 2023. Run number four Eden 2023 on Instagram. These guys are raising some money. It's a fantastic initiative, and uh, these guys are absolute legends. Check that out at run for Eden 2023. Anyway, let's get into today's interview. Lenny Logsdale, Aquatic Apes. Here we go. 
I was left with an empty cooler after missing and wounding a bunch of fish with a shoddy spear gun. A work colleague urged me to speak to Neptonics, and I'm so glad I did. Without Jerry and the Neptonics team, I would have kept missing bulk fish and coming home to my wife empty-handed. Now I can focus on slaying monster hogs and groper and covering the deck of my boat in blood. Never buy a shitty piece of equipment again. Shopneptonics.com. Use the code NOOB10 to save 10% and go spearing with confidence. Jerry says if we sell it, we believe in it, we trust it, and dive it. Shopneptonics.com. Free shipping for the lower 48 for orders over $199. And you can save 10% when you use the code NOOB10. N-O-O-B-1-0 at Neptonics.com. Hoorah! Adreno stocks equipment for noobers. The gear you need for all things freediving and spearfishing. The Adreno spearfishing team froth on helping customers learn about the latest in spearfishing equipment, local diving, upcoming trips and events for spearos of all levels of experience. There's no ego in there. You're going to meet cool people that love this spearing lifestyle as much as you do. Visit them in store in one of their huge mega stores around Australia. Chat to one of their friendly team members. Take advantage of the Noob Spiro discount code. Save $20 on every purchase over $200 in-store, online, easy savings. Pump in the code NoobSpiro if you're shopping online or in-store. Mention it's one of their friendly team members and save $20 over $200. That's right. Use the code NoobSpiro in-store. Shop with Adreno, our partner for more than 200 episodes. G'day, Noobers. Today I'm joined by Lenny from Aquatic Apes. It's a it's a hell of a good YouTube channel, um, uptaken by people outside our spearfishing world as well. I'm hoping to pick your brains today, Lenny, and find out sort of a bit of a recipe for the rest of us that have got um, maybe some good spearfishing content, but no idea how to make videos, brother. So welcome to the show. Cool. Thanks. I'm excited to uh, to do the show with you. Mate, I've listened to, and I've only re- recently re-listened to your interview on Spear Factor with Brett Whitman. That was an absolute cracker chat, but that was two years ago. You've come a long, a long way since then. Your channel's grown a heck of a lot. Um Mate, it, it, it's crazy. 2.3 million subscribers. Does that seem a bit, a little bit surreal? Yeah, it's, um, it, it definitely is surreal. When I started it, my goal was, I, th- I wrote it down. I think it was like 10,000 by the end of the year. And, um, and yeah, a lot of things lined up in a lucky way that made that be almost a million after the first year. And, um, and yeah, it's continued to grow. It's crazy. No. imposter syndrome yeah um more so before i actually i actually haven't really logged on to my own youtube for over a year now so i don't nice. actually really know the numbers of the videos or the subscriber count so that's i knew it was more than two i didn't know it was 2.3 um so what what do you, you now you've sort of outsourced the publishing side of things have you no it's just i don't think it's good for you to keep to track of keep two on top of the numbers um yep. At least for me, like, I want the, like, okay, you do something good, you get like that dopamine hit. I want that to come from creating something rather than from whether or not it's well received. Cause mm. at least half the time it's gonna be like on YouTube, they have like rankings for the videos. Oh. Half the time it's gonna be under a five out of 10, and half the time it's gonna be above. And you're depressed when it's underperforming and you're elated when it's over, when it's doing well. I don't think either is good for you. So I've sort of just, removed myself from that part of it and it's helped a bit nice I, i'm getting to right straight into the guts the crux of 
one of the main questions I really wanted to ask you, and, and, and it's it's pretty early because I feel like I haven't even warmed you up, but like with with creating something like what you've created, I, I, I think, you know, you can be really strategic and you can play the platform's algorithm mm. um, and then you can also play to the people that will enjoy your content and you can follow a recipe and formulas that other people have done before you. But then there's the art side of things too, where you want to just please kind of your own creative instincts as well. How do you do that? And has it changed over time? Yeah, it's um, it's a constant thing on my mind, probably for everyone doing it. Like, like you can't get too, not you, like me, I, I can't get too specific on something um, that maybe I'd want to, because I know it just wouldn't appeal to as broad of an audience. And um there's a question as to whether or not that's the right thing to do creatively, but it's definitely the right thing to do if your goal is to get more views. Um, mm. um, yeah, does that sort of answer the question? It, it 100% does. And I think like one thing a lot of Spiros do is they create content for other Spiros and mm. you assume a certain level of knowledge and competence and then you almost want them to understand what you're doing um, but sometimes I think if you want broader appeal and you want to make money out of a YouTube channel and, and things like that, you have to appeal more bro- broadly than that. And I, I, I talked to people way back in the day about how they did it and storytelling is a massive part of it and you've got a, you've got an absolute gift for it. So like you, you, you sort of, um, you grew up in Connecticut. So I think you're, you're, you've got this sort of homey American accent, but then you really know how to use tone of voice and pitch and tell mm. a compelling story as well as kind of keeping it simple and keeping to the the main the main things I guess within the within the video that you know will appeal is that would that be fair yeah i try and i try and write the video as if it's for someone who's not really an expert at spearfishing or even knows anything about it like um nice. it was an interview i watched with this famous youtuber mr beast you probably yep. know about him um and On he Rogan. said this one huh the one on on Rogan, Joe Rogan. It might have been on Rogan. I can't remember where yep. it was, but but he said something like, um, "If you want ten million people to watch your video, you need ten million people to click on it." Um, so, like, if you want, not that I'm getting those kind of numbers, but if you want like five hundred thousand views, you need a, you can't you can't make a video if you want five hundred thousand views, you can't make a video on how to spear striped bass off the coast of Rhode Island in September. Like, yeah. it can be a great video and really informative, but it's like, I don't think there's half a million people who need those specific tips. And um, and it's just what it is for YouTube, I guess. It doesn't make mm. the video better or worse. It's just more specific. Mate, you've done a heck of a job. Like, um, a lot of people aspire to, you know, YouTube success. And, and, and I, I think it's a... It's an admirable career path. I mean, you know, like I'm working 50 hours a week as a, a, a in an electrical job installing street lighting. You know, mm. Noob Spiro is very much my sideline, and um and and my family come in that as well. And there's a certain level of like strategic um accomplishment to what you've done, and I hundred percent admire, it and I think it's really cool. And a lot of people want to do what you're doing, man. And you've kind of figured it out a bit. I mean, mm. there was a timing thing there with COVID and you are ideally situated. So let's talk about your situation. So, you know, you, you, you sort of come out of New York and you decided basically like, um, to do your freediving instructors in Indonesia and you're living there in, uh, in Bali, I believe. Is that still right? Are you in Bali? 
Yeah, yeah. I'm in Bali right now. It's, I've lived here for uh, about four years now. Um, yeah, I was living in New York. I was working for my family's company. My dad's a tailor. He makes like business suits. And I was doing that for, I don't know, eight years, long time. I didn't, I didn't love it. Didn't love New York. Not much outdoor stuff to do unless you got a lot of money. Um, and anyways, I went backpacking around Thailand and South, Southeast Asia. I was supposed to go for three months. And um, I ended up going to Koh Tao, which I think a lot of people do their level one course there. And I did it. Um, Evan, who we know, sold me the course originally and then um, skipped my flight back. And I've kind of been here within Southeast Asia ever since. And, uh, yeah. and then during COVID, just the day before the border shut in Indonesia, I came to Bali. I was going to work here as a freediving instructor up in Ahmed, which is sort of like the freediving area of Bali. And um, anyways, there's no tourists because of COVID. And then I was teaching English online for... Um, I don't know, a year and a half, two years or so. I've done that. Have you done that? I taught in China for a year, but I taught in Brisbane first and then I I went and lived in China and did it. And in some ways I'm envious of you doing it remotely because um, most of China is just like, you know, not great for spearfishing. There are some parts that are like uh, Sanya, I think. uh, But Mm. I wasn't living in that part. I was up sort of just north of Shanghai, but similar stuff. Oh, yeah, same idea. Yeah, it's a big industry. They really, really want their citizens to learn English. Anyways, it was great here. I was I would work Saturday and Sunday each day for about 12 or 13 hours. So really long days. And so I'd clock in a 26 hour work week just on the weekend. And then Monday through Friday, I would go spearfishing every day. Um, I had a boat captain who was my full time employee and I ended up buying a a local boat is called the Jukung. It's kind of more like a canoe than a boat. But um, okay. is that outrigger yeah, really, tops? Yeah, yeah, with the arms on the side. I've seen yeah. it. I've seen it on your videos. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. And um, and yeah, that's sort of how I learned to spearfish. That was up until really recently that I had only ever speared in Indonesia. And um, yeah. And now you're getting around. Yeah, it's still mostly in Indonesia, but I went to Florida a couple of weeks ago. What was the what was the similarities and differences there? Uh, the boats are a lot nicer in Florida, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> some good boats come out of that part of the world. Like there are there's some and there's some crap ones too. Like um sometimes cost is not necessarily uh an indicator of, of um quality either. Mm. Like some of those boats over there seem to be really flat bottomed and really beamy and they just crap when you're out in any sort of rough conditions. Did you you'd have an appreciation for the you know, the banana style boats that you come out in Indonesia, like they're quite narrow, but they have amazing sort of like seaworthiness. Uh, a, a lot of them, apart from the leaks. Yeah. Apart from the leaks and, and all the other things that go wrong, they're, they're great. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're good boats and it's so cheap. I mean, you can charter a private boat in Bali. It's a bit more expensive, but if you go to another Island, you're talking like 15 or $20 a day. Oh, hectic. And, um, that's, that's just a private boat wherever you want to go. It's, it's, it's great. Some similarities, differences. How what, how else was it sort of similar and different? Oh, Florida to Indonesia. Mm. Oh my gosh, it's so different. It was um, the biggest difference was there's like like bag limits and size limits and seasons for the fish. So um, that was something I struggled with. There's so many different types of fish, and you have to see like okay, this one, this size is too big. This size is too small, and you don't really know. Like like black groupers are are one of the main targets out there and they look really similar to another type of grouper, like a small Goliath grouper, but they have a different eye. And so you got to be down there and be like, 
what kind of eye is that? This one is off limits all year long. This one you can get, but not if it's this big or this small. And um, it ended up being all right. But um, it was definitely a change from Indonesia where there's essentially no rules. There's basically one rule. You can't spear Napoleon Rass. And um, other than that, everything's kind of fair game. The Floridian Spiro community is is quite populous. Like they like you're talking large numbers of people that have fairly good access to, you know, all parts of that sort of Florida coastline. Um, it, it seems to be a really well managed fishery. Did did you get the sense that both areas are heavily populated, heavily fished, um, but the management is better like is it overall i mean oh, do you have a million on that? times better i mean it was amazing it was um i i went i can't remember the name and maybe i shouldn't even say it anyways but it was in the keys i from what i understand it's kind of near where key west waterman does his stuff like going in those what's he called swiss cheese caves yeah um, yeah yeah so we we're doing that sort of thing and um there was such an op- i mean you would see here in bali especially it's very very heavily fished um so so many local spearfish they do it at night they do it on scuba they do it in the daytime there's plenty of people like me who spearfish and there's no rules and there's a bunch of normal fishermen so um generally in the first 10 meters like the first what's that 30 feet you're not gonna see much generally i mean you might and depends on the spot or whatever but in florida my gosh you'd see like it was almost like the technique was to float on the surface and look for a big grouper to dart into a hole like seven or eight meters deep and then you go down and there's a whole new technique for it was just different like that's not how you do it at least in bali it's um it was cool it was such a fun experience i went out with um this guy captain jack spiro he's got a youtube channel and yeah. um these other these brothers derek and justin van hook and um they're all great spiros and they really made my uh chances of success much much higher they sort of knew the good spots all the technique and even jack came down with me a couple of times and like I would, I would point at the grouper and I didn't really know if it's the right size or the right one. I'd look <laughs> back at him and he's like, ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> at yeah, least two yeah. or three fish were caught that way. <laughs> that's how that's how guiding is sometimes. I mean, like honestly, though, there's a vicarious pleasure in just helping people get fish. You're 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 doing some guiding as well. Are you instructing guiding there as well in Bali? No, no, none of that. Ah. So no, just people ask maybe, well, maybe one day we'll do something, but for now it's just uh, just YouTube. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Okay, cool. We're going to geek out hard on your YouTube channel, but um, wanted to get into the weeds a little bit more. So this Wolf of Wall Street part that you played, I'm curious. Just tell me about that briefly. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, so for the, the audience, I guess, has no idea what you're talking about right now. Wolf of Wall Street, they're thinking spearfishing Wolf of Wall Street. Um, nah, I, I, everyone's used to my, um, you know, what do you call it when you get a head off on a tangent? It's like, yeah. Get lost in the weeds. So you yeah, had a funny. small part in the movie. Yeah, I had a small part in the movie years and years ago. So um, my family's business, really my dad's business, is making custom business suits. Like, mm. um, and so he's done a few different movies, and um, like he's he's did the suits for American Gangster and The Irishman, a number of different movies. Anyways, and uh, one of them was The Wolf of Wall Street, and I was working for him at the time, and they had a role for um, a couple of tailors which I was, he still is, to be fitting the stockbrokers as they're on the phone selling uh, the scam stocks or whatever. Bogus, bogus stocks, yeah. And um, and yeah, so I'm in the movie, so is he. Uh, He's been in a few different movies playing as a tailor. 
And um, yeah, if you watch The Wolf of Wall Street, right around the 40 minute mark or something, you'll see uh, you'll see me. I, I actually, if you pause it, I'm looking into the camera, which you're not supposed to do as an actor. <laughs> and so like in the movie, Leo talks to the camera, like he breaks the wall, the fourth wall or whatever it's called. And um, I like to say that the only other actor in the movie who did that was me. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> That's a good little byline. I like that. So that was Lenny pre-Aquatic Apes. So Pretty people might apes. be interested in watching that. It, it adds something to the movie too when you, there's someone you kind of know or you're familiar with in it. So that's pretty <laughs> cool. Um, mate, so Indo, you said like, you know, where you're around the really populated areas, like um, under 10 meters, kind of not a lot around. Um, you mentioned that like, the local guys love the sparing, but most of them aren't real competent with regards to, or, or they just don't have the knowledge to dive deeper. Um I hear lots of stuff about like massive down currents, hectic current, particularly out where you're on the dog tooth ground and stuff like that. Talk to me about like, you know, let's go through a couple of options. Like, so someone goes there on a DIY trip. Um, I mean, let's not give out GPS coordinates, but I mean, you arrive in Bali, where to from there and, and how do you go about doing it? Like with regards to being an English, predominantly maybe just an English speaking person. Yeah. If you're only speaking English, you're you can do it but it'll be way harder um um first of all just quick the the locals some of the local spiros are really amazing yeah. like some of the best spiros i've ever seen they're diving deep and and we'll go out for a day and i'll see nothing and they'll come back with just piles of fish it's yeah um, yeah i didn't mean a, that i just meant like you i think I, you said on brett's show like a lot of them just a lot of them don't yeah yeah a lot of people they're they're not free dive trained, that's for sure, even the really good ones. And um, but um, but it's a skill level that I think is born from them just trying to feed their families. And like these guys are just so amazing at spearfishing. There's so many guys who are commercial spearos, like like they'll take people like me or any any tourist out with them and they'll charge them a bit of money, but they're going out anyways, and they're uh, out catching their peers who are rod and reel pretty much every day of the week it's, um, oh, wow. it's cool to see but uh but yeah about down currents um yeah so you go from bali um it's sort of what i love to do for spearfishing now i don't spearfish in bali so much anymore because the flights here are, are very cheap you can fly anywhere for like a hundred dollars maybe two hundred dollars depending on where you're going when you buy the ticket but it's it's very cheap and then anywhere not in bali within indonesia is incredibly cheap the food is a, a couple of bucks a day, the hotels and places to stay. If there are hotels, it's in the realm of 10 or $20 a night. And that's for something nice. You could always just stay with like a local family for whatever you feel like giving them. They'd probably let you stay there for free if, if, wow. if you wanted to, but you should give them something anyways. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's sort of the biggest doggies are in the areas where the strongest currents are. Um, and you sort of just, like look for channels where there'd be a lot of water passing through and then like a bami or an island or a rock within that channel. And like, there's almost definitely going to be dog tooth tuna on there. Maybe a hundred percent there's going to be on dog tooth tuna on there anywhere in Indonesia. The question is how big they are. And um, the only way is to go there and have this big trip that takes a bunch of days to get to the spot. And then you got to negotiate with a local fisherman with a sketchy boat and then just go check it. And, um, and even then the best spot in the world, some days the tuna just won't be there. And, uh, 
It takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. Not that much money compared to probably anywhere else you want to you want to go after big tuna, but um, but definitely a lot of time. Okay, cool. So the currents okay. are crazy, and to, and to talk about the down current, it's um, hmm. I've, I've I haven't really dove in many other spots around the world. I mean, compared to Florida, the currents were nothing, but um, you can see whirlpools like three meters tall, maybe more. It's, um, it's, it's, it's really, it's wild to see. It's, it's like whitewater rapids in a lot of these yeah. spots and, um, there's so, down current sideways current and it's, it's float line management is so important. Like yeah, a lot of these yeah. spots might be like a tiny little Island, 50 meters across. And, um, the current can change just in an instant and uh you gotta keep your floats close to you like have have your line can get wrapped around a rock and there's no way you're swimming against the current not even close and um so like when that happens you need to fire your gun obviously in a safe direction so that because the gun will be ripped out of your hands otherwise there's if, if your line's tangled and then you're trying to untangle your line with a loaded gun and by then the shooting line will have popped off and it's basically just pointing at you and you're trying to un- <laughs> all kinds of stuff can go wrong man it's crazy so i mean to talk to me about a time where like you've freaked yourself out with current and how do you manage it like talk to me about what are your strategies for managing this hectic current so we you know you're looking deliberately for like these tidal challenge um these tidal channels with massive current hopefully hitting a pressure point that's where we're going to get the bait and therefore the dog tooth or the um but so we're deliberately putting ourselves in these environments for drifts what are your strategies for keeping everyone safe or at least keeping yourself safe if you just yeah so a big one is float line management like most people will have two floats on the end of their line. I've got two of these um, Ocean Hunter from New Zealand floats. Yeah. They're, they're so many atmospheres are so big and so strong. They're great floats. I love them. And um, anyways, everybody's got two floats. And so everybody's got a 30 meter line, um, 100 foot line. And um, so the biggest thing is getting tangled with each other and then getting tangled on like rocks and stuff that are either sticking out or like one meter under the water. And uh, so basically, I, um, how can I describe this for audio? Like you've got your gun in one hand, obviously. And then, um, I try and keep my floats. I hold the line about three or four meters away from the floats also. So that trailing behind me is not my floats, but just the slack of the line. And, um, that way you're not going to get tangled up in your buddy's line and you're not going to, you're less likely to get tangled up on rocks and stuff. And, um, so sort of as you're swimming to wherever you want to be, you're looking for the pressure point. Um, I'll be sort of like pulling the line up and up, pulling the floats closer and closer and closer. It's just part of my swimming thing. And then eventually I've got my floats two or three meters away from me yep. with the line in one hand and then my spear gun in the other. And then it's so do you have it coiled or do you have it hanging down in lengths? Um, coil it's not coiled, it's you... sort of like hanging behind me. Okay. The float line, the, the foot line is pretty buoyant. Yeah, um, yeah. So I watch one of I watch one of your vids where you got a little bit tangled. I think with a wahoo, and then it ended up tearing off. Was that have I got that right, or was it a, a tour? wahoo? I mean, I've I had plenty of wahoo tear off. Um, and you just like when a float line. I mean, this is a good. This is a good one. Like where if, uh, your line tangles around your leg or something, and you just oh. end up putting more tension on a shooting line than you wanted to, particularly with a crap shot and a fish tears off. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, that was at the fads. Um, 
Yeah, that was just stupid. I was a little rusty. Like, yeah. like when I go out with a float line, like I'm going on a doggy trip in about a month and a half now. And um, the first couple of days, the first day, you're really kind of just getting yeah. used to diving with two floats in the line and a giant gun the size of a tree. And and um, yeah, so that time with the Wahoo, it was around like the end of my fin and it wasn't the best shot in the fish and uh, it ended up breaking free. It might have broken free anyways, but it definitely did because it had no slack. You, you've touched on a couple of really interesting things there. So like largely you're reef hunting every now and then you're getting out for these big blue water expeditions. One of the things you touched on that I can hundred percent relate to. And I think a lot of people can is the first day or two when you're out doing something, you haven't done it for a while, you tend to be really rusty and shit. Mm. Um, and I, I, I'm hoping everyone is like that at least to some level. How do you like There's There's two things there. I think, Guys want to come out and do like a blue water trip and, you know, every day you're out there is like money and time. And so a lot of guys will try and punch a four or five day, you know, blue water expedition. And, and sometimes you, you lose a day or two just because you're rusty and stuff like that. How do you, you know, what what's your sort of rules for how long you go out for on a blue water trip? And how do you factor in that rusty period and what do you do to overcome it? Yeah. So, um, I've, I've, like you see people who will go on these trips and like they buy a brand new gun, say from Andre Spear guns when they arrive to Bali. And then the next day they go out like, in my opinion, that's not the right way to do it. You need to spend at least a day in the pool with the guns. Like you got to bring a couple of spears and know each spear, know that every single one is going to suit straight. You can't be unpackaging your gun once you arrive to whatever remote spot you're going. Um, so you got to, Target, pool test the gun, be familiar with it, know that it's going to shoot straight. You don't want to find out that something's going wrong when you're all the way there. And um, and the other thing, like diving with the float line, like if you could just bring your big tuna gun out with you wherever you are and just, I don't know, if, if you're in Australia, just try and spear kingfish with a 160 centimeter gun. Not, not because it's the right gun, but maybe just because you want to get used to like maneuvering it in the water and so yeah. you're not learning on day one, um, how to shoot it again, how to going. maneuver with it, how to swim with it, how to duck dive with it. All of these things kind of like you take for granted when you know your gun really well, but when you have forgotten because you haven't used it for so long or you've been using a different setup, it's real, really painful. Um, are you using breakaway setup for doggies? Yeah, for doggies. Yeah, yeah. I've Walk got, um, yeah, you got to use a breakaway setup, really. Yeah, you, so that's that, expensive, you might lose it otherwise. I don't know. That can be hard to get used to as well. Like, um, walk me through your spear gun setup now. I know you've got a, a big Andre inverted roller or you used to. What's your sort of your main rig now for shooting dog tooth? Yeah, for shooting doggies, I've got uh, what I've been using for years is the 165 inverted roller from Andre spear guns. It's, um, it's an amazing gun. It shoots so straight and, um, it's reliable. It's a good price for what it is. It's, it's, it's probably the best value big tuna gun out there. And there's a lot of good companies. Um, and um, I just got a new gun from uh, this new company. My buddy Paul started Kraken Spear Guns. Um, yep, yep. So, so actually on the wall behind me, I've got a 155 Kraken double-double roller. I haven't tried it out in the pool yet. So um, when I go on this trip in six weeks, I'm probably going to bring both um, just because it's a brand new gun. And I don't know, just in case, like I'll, I'll have the other one that I know works. And uh, yeah, but both I'll, great guns, both great guns. Yeah. Guns, when you shoot a special fish or you've put a, a number of like runs on it, they, they become old faithful. 
And it's mm. very hard to let go of Old Faithful, even when you've got a shiny new toy there. So I relate to that. Um, yeah, nice, but, man. But so, the rest of the doggy rig, um, so I've got I've, – I've, it wasn't always like this. I guess for everyone, you sort of – trial and error. I remember my first couple of trips – going after them. I really had no idea what my rig was supposed to be. And, um, and I paid the price. I still the biggest dog I've ever seen today. I don't know how big it was, but I'd, I don't know. It's hard to guess massive, bigger than anyone I've ever seen placed a good shot into its back. And, um, the freaking crimp slipped off. And that's just cause I didn't do the crimp myself. Now I always do the crimps myself and I'm very meticulous about it. There's no way whatever guy at whatever shop is going to be as meticulous as I am. Um, anyways, so, um, yeah, yeah. Big gun, big spear. And, um, then I've got a, a cable with a two and a half wraps on it for a breakaway setup. And, um, then a carabiner, just a normal rope float line. I, I, I don't know if there's any brand for it, but it's just like a, some sort of a rope and uh 30 meters. We call it- we call it like telecom rope here. It's fairly rigid. Is it like a poly type line? Like yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. And um, yeah, thirty meter line, and um, and then no bungee, two of those. nothing to soften that. No, no bungee, because they're gonna. At least for here, from the experienced guys in Indonesia that I've gone out with and spoken to, the doggy's gonna go down for the reef, and mm. um, Try and you just you. need to keep them away from the reef at all costs, and. Uh, if it was true blue water, if they were out in a thousand meters of depth, of course the bungee would be better. But just for this situation, you have to risk the tear out. I think. Yeah. And I've been yeah. taught. Um, so so yeah, no stop. bungee, and not even between the two floats, no bungee, just all rope. Wow. And how far between floats? Uh, how much? A couple between? of meters. I, I I'm not sure exactly. Like I don't know, a couple of float lengths. Um, and um. Yeah, that's basically the rig. It's it's pretty simple. I know some people have like tried to keep their doggy rigs secret. And um, I don't know. I get keeping the spot secret. Obviously, you should do that. But like, if you just let people go out with maybe a less than perfect rig, you're just going to end up losing more fish and the doggy population will suffer because of it. And that person let's, needs let's... to shoot even more to get that big fish they want. I think it's it's good to share the rig, I think. This is my thought. Like, uh, my, my personal opinion is, like, share the rig because, yeah, you, like, hopefully you'll give people a higher percentage of take-home fish because, and I think you and Brett touched on this, you were talking about, like, you know, maybe two in ten dog tooth, like, guys shoot uh, at what they actually put on the boat. And it's a pretty shit ratio, like, if we're, mm. if we're honest about it. But, yeah, two um, in ten, that might have been... My ratio then it's it's much higher now. I think once you're comfortable with your gun and your rig, it's um, it's you you can get those numbers way higher. Okay, like so now, talk to me about getting those numbers higher. Sounds like you've gone on a journey there from two to ten to, let's say you're taking one and two now, uh, whereas you were one and five before. Is it would it be something like that now or? I don't know what it was before. Before when I gone with when I talked to Brett. Well, well, well. Now it's it's higher. Like basically. If you place a good shot with a rig like what I've got, like like either sharks will get it, which isn't likely here in Indo, or it will take both of your floats down so deep and then get reefed up that you couldn't possibly dive down to um to untangle it, which is like part of the reality of having a cable. But but the other thing is like if it gets reefed up in 20 meters with the cable, then you could probably go down and do something about it. Um 
But um, but yeah, it's just about placing the good shot is what so many debates as to where that shot placement is. Um, gill plate, tail, behind the pec fin. Um, What's your recipe? Where do you like to shoot them? I, I'll go for I'll go for near the pectoral fin. Um, it's just so much sinew and bone. There's so much going on around there. So many potentials for a good shot in that area. Um, but I don't know. I've seen like um, there's this dude in Japan. I, I don't know his name, but I think his Instagram handle is like Mission 100 Films or something. Uh, I think and, I've seen uh, this, guy. this dude is spearing 90, 100 kilo doggies with a homemade pole spear. And uh, there's this one crazy <laughs> video he's got where it's a massive doggy, so close. It must be one meter away from him. And yeah. uh, he could hit the fish anywhere he wants with that pole spear. And he goes right for the tail. And um, wow, it's it's a crazy video on Instagram. You should, uh, whoever's listening should check it out. It's, uh, I've never seen anything like it. I, he'd, he never shows the ending of what happens with any of these fish. I think he's coming out with a big feature film or something. But okay. I wish he would show the ending. I want to know what happened <laughs> after that. But uh, he could have chosen anywhere on that on that dog and he chose to put it sort of right above the the anal fin and whatever fins right above the anal fin um that's sort of right where he aimed yeah right far out that's very cool i mean again like a lot of tough structure there i guess i've never been dog tooth hunting i really want to do it it's 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 coming one of these days um yeah need to get a massive leave pass i don't know how much goodwill i'd need to build with my wife first but um, <laughs> it's coming indonesia's like only a, a short you know, hop really away from Australia. Um, for your average DIY person on a fairly low budget, um, what do you recommend they do? So they, where, where should they fly into and what, what opportunities should they look for? Um, <clears throat> you can, you can chase doggies in Bali. Um, there are still big ones here, but they're much, much smarter and rarer. And um, your chance of success will be so much higher on other islands. But um, but if you're really on a budget, you can come to Bali, and um, and there's places here. Uh, there's plenty of guides around the island that you can call, and and they'll put you on the doggy spots, and uh, relatively inexpensively compared to the rest of the world. I mean, it was only it was only three or four weeks ago somebody landed. I think it was eighty something kilo doggy here in Bali, which is oh, wild. Wow. Um, the world record that Cameron Kirkconnell shot years and years ago was 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 not very far from Bali. And, um, but if you really want to go get a big doggy, you don't want to be on Bali. You want to, you want to go to other parts of Indonesia or French Polynesia or wherever. I love that feeling underwater when you pull the trigger and you know exactly where that shaft is going. You want something dependable. You want to put that fish that you've been chasing for a lifetime in the boat, in the cooler, in the esky, in the chili bin here in New Zealand. Why do we call all these things different names? Anyway, today's show sponsor, KillshotSpearGuns.com, make awesome wooden timber spear guns, a fantastic shooting platform. If you've ever shot a big timber gun, you know the, the reliability that you get from these things. Uh, he mostly makes enclosed track spear guns. Visit him at KillshotSpearGuns.com. Use the code NOOB to save $30 on any Killshot spear gun. Hey guys, not sure how you stay hydrated out on the boats on those long days out on the water, uh, but staying hydrated is absolutely critical to towards good equalization and looking after your body, making sure you're not doing those awkward one-legged kicks to the surface when, when one leg cramps out on you. Go to aqualite.com.au 
and get yourself a box of sachets. You just simply add them to water. It's less than $1.28 per serve. It's cheaper and cheaper and healthier than any other sports drinks on the market. Aqualite will make a difference in your spearfishing. Check it out at aqualite.com.au. Use the code NoobSparrow to save 10% on any order. Check it out. Aqualite, made in Western Australia. Got a sweet deal for you today, guys. Go to freedivingfamily.com and learn from Adam Stern and a select team of experts on different disciplines. There's Frenzel, Advanced Frenzel and Hands-Free Equalization, Mouthful, Deep Frenzel Equalization, Bifinning Essentials. These are courses that will give you the 1% that will allow you to improve. Use the code SPIRO to get 20% off any course at freedivingfamily.com. Again, that's the code SPIRO to get 20% off at freedivingfamily.com. Thanks, Adam and team. Love it. We don't have to stick to just dog tooth, uh, Lenny. Like, um, I think the spearing world and even probably maybe the YouTube world fall in love with big fish and stuff like that. But talk to me about what you're passionate about. What do you like doing when you go out spearing? What's like, I love going uh, after big doggies. That's, that's my favorite thing. <laughs> Is it really? Does it just take over? Oh, it, it, your level of um, your threshold of excitement and what and what. Like when you first start spearing, you spear whatever fish and it's the coolest thing in the world and the biggest thing you've ever seen in your life. And it's so exciting. And that threshold constantly changes and changes and changes. And then at least in my experience and most of my friends experience, when you start going after those bigger ones, it's less exciting than what was once normal spearfishing for you. Uh, that's I don't know a shame. A, huh? It's an honest answer. I, I, I do think it's a, it's a shame. Like, but you, do you still appreciate shooting dinner? Like, I remember watching one of your earlier vids and you smashed it. Like, I think maybe it was you, you just got a new spear gun with your stimulus check and you went out oh, yeah. and, and smashed like a surgeon fish or something like that. Uh, and you cooked that up and it looked like a really nice, nice, nice meal. Do you, do you, does that still appeal to you, that stuff as well? It's funny you said that because just yesterday I was out spearfishing and there was basically nothing around and, um, and I ended up spearing a good size surgeon fish, which, um, which we're going to cook this evening. And it was for that reason. Like I just hadn't had one in a while and I was like, you know, I used to eat these things all the time. It's still a good fish. And, Have you dry um, aged one? Uh, no, I haven't. They asked on the boat yesterday. One of my buddies actually. No, I, I haven't. Is it good? Oh, it's insane. I, I, I do. Like everyone's starting to get real elaborate with these, these days. Like you, you see guys with like, a, um, you know, you buy an old freestanding refrigerator and you um, can weld a bar in the top and hang your own metal hooks and then mm. you hang them by their tail, head down. You can put like a couple of computer fans, wire them into the um, fridge and then, you know, oh, wow. get that air circulating. And then these guys have got these really cool DIY elaborate setups. Love that idea. For me personally, like I have got a fridge that I've prepared to kind of do that, but I have not had time to get out there and sort of retrofit it. For me, like I'll shoot a surgeon fish and – um, I just knock the fillets off, leave the skin on, uh, and then wrap them in paper towel, like completely dry them, make sure I don't introduce any fresh water, wrap them in paper towel, put them in a Ziploc bag and put them in the fridge for 24 hours, pull it out, change the paper towel, put it back in the Ziploc bag, put it back in the fridge for another 24, 48 hours and pull that out. It'll be some of the best fish you've eaten in your life. I'm telling really? you. Really? Just and a plain surgeon fish. Oh, I haven't done it on all fish. Surgeon fish in particular I do it with, and I'll, and I'll make like um, ceviche for my wife and kids, and they're not like super fishy lover type people. They're like fairly 
But the the flavor profile in it in those fish when they've had like two or three days dry aging, it's unbelievable. Like um, it's just something else. It's next level. I'll do that with this one. Yeah, do it, man. <laughs> I'm going to go even, in after this podcast. I'll go yeah, even even after this, jump in, wrap it in paper towel, put it in a paper, paper bag. If you don't want to eat it tonight, it's probably going to be even better tomorrow, you know? Yeah, okay. Or even out. if you just keep one, fill it for that. And um, yeah, I don't know. Have you mixed it much with ceviches? Do you, do you uh, get not into surgeon fish, but I make it often with other types of fish. What How's your ceviche go? What do you do? Oh, you'd have to ask my girlfriend. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> There's a couple of crackers. Like my personal favorite, like is in the book I've got the 99 spare recipes. But uh, passion fruit and like uh, and lime, those flavors with um, you know, like um, you know, cilantro or coriander. It's just so good, man. Um, a lot of people think that's blasphemy adding coriander, but. Definitely, definitely a for and against camp with coriander. Mm. But we have mm. coriander in it. That's one of the ingredients. Yeah, yeah. Asian countries, man, have got such a greater appreciation and variety for vegetables. Uh, like you go to a fruit market, I don't know, in China, and there's like, it just seems like there's way more variety. Mm. What What about there in, in Indo? What's it like there? Um, I'd say less so than Chinese food less so than Vietnamese or even Thai food. Uh, here, the veggies are often sautéed in some sort of a local oil, and it's often this one specific type of vegetable. I can't remember the name of it, but it's not something you would see in the Western world. Um, I, I think that that sort of standard being for the average local village food vegetable in Indonesia probably comes from the fact that they don't have like refrigerators in a lot of these places and... Um, and it's just a way of making sure that the they're cooked properly and in a way that's not going to get you sick. Um, but it's it's less exciting than like Chinese food vegetables. I know what you're talking about. Indo belly, talk to me about the adjustment <laughs> with your digestive tract to uh how much time stadium. do you have? <laughs> <laughs> have you scared have you scared yourself? Like I remember you talking about the health system and stuff, and like I think there's a level of naivety when it comes to like just how bad shit can go wrong in those countries when you and you don't have like I mean maybe your healthcare is good there I don't know talk to me about it um well well let's talk about Bali belly first um I don't ever n- not have Bali belly it's just varying levels of <laughs> of <laughs> urgency <laughs> honestly for years like it's it's just it is what it is like yeah. if you go for a run you got to know where the toilets are it's and I eat a, a lot of different types of food. I eat a lot of local food. Although I do think the Western food is is honestly the main culprit for um, yeah, right. for Bali Belly, to be honest. The worst I've ever had, I was going to a remote island. Or no, wait, was I going? Yeah, I was going to a remote place. And <laughs> I was in this city called Makassar, which is, it's a big city in Indonesia. Anyways, yep. at the airport there, we were doing a transfer flight to somewhere else. And um, there was an A&W, like the burger joint. And I was like, oh, I could go for a cheeseburger right now. And so I ordered it. And then we took the flight. It was like an hour or two to um, go on to- somewhere else. And then um, we were then taking a ferry, which we would sleep on to go to another island. And um, I couldn't stop vomiting and having diarrhea. And when you're that remote, there's no toilet paper anywhere. There's not even toilets. There's just holes in the ground. Right. And it was just squatting. And then turning around as fast as I can, to, and 
and yeah, that's it's not that unusual of a um. Oh, right. maybe, maybe that's too much for your listeners to uh. Ah. No, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast, but it's like a regular feature on the show. We have to have some sort of poo story, so that's great. Um, I, got, I got more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. High-waisted pants there a necessity then? So like... High-waisted pants, I don't know. Rather don't than know. wearing like a Farmer John, like you can get them down in a hurry and just do your business? Just just be wary of farts, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> Not always farts. I was this, uh, I just went and filmed, I haven't made this video yet, but there's a, a village in Indonesia of um, of whale hunters. And they sort of hunt all kinds of different animals, but but they're famous for hunting whales. Like they're one of the few indigenous peoples in the world which are still allowed to do their thousands of year old tradition of hunting whales. Anyways, I, I lived with them for a week and went out with them. And um, on the last night, we kind of had like a bit of a celebration. We were drinking what's called tuak, which is like... Um, palm wine um sort of it's in like a gasoline tank and like you get like a big two gallon thing it's about a dollar fifty for that and um yeah anyways on the on the bus ride back to the airport after that i uh i thought it was farting and it wasn't a fart and 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 that's the last one I, we don't have to have the whole podcast no, about no, i love it teaspoon me, of soap. me shitting myself it's a, a good bonus <laughs> with a fart <laughs> <laughs> Mate, let's get into your YouTube channel. Um, cool. So I already mentioned the stimulus check video. Um, I don't think that's one of the earliest videos you've made. Have you? Uh, I think that was my you, very first video. Was that? Have you deleted if, videos or, or have you no. left them? You've left them all. Everyone. My very first one, I think, was. So there's two versions. There's a long version, which is four or five minutes. And then there's a short vertical version, like a TikTok style. Ah, yeah. So maybe that's the one you saw. That was not my first one. But... No, no, no. I just, like, when I think about, like, making stuff, right? Like, there's a real temptation when you listen to your earlier stuff to, or watch it, in your case, um, to just go, shit, I should have been that. You know, like, I don't know. Oh, have yeah. you ever, you, like, how do you feel? Do you, like cringe and stuff when you look at any of your old stuff? Oh, I cringe if I watch the last video I made. <laughs> I hate all of them. <laughs> but yeah, especially the early ones. Oh, I would try and talk to the camera. Looks like a hostage video. I would have all of the space above my head and I was... <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is what it is. It's the only way to learn, right? Look like a hostage video. I like that. It's, that gives you an instant sort of like like reference for it. That's fantastic. But my first video ever was, I did get the stimulus check from the US. Every American got, I think it was $1,300. Um, and I went and bought um, some Andre Spear gun with that. And um, yeah. that was my first video. And uh, sort of, I think what's a little different about my YouTube channel is I learned to spearfish with a GoPro in my head making these videos. I don't think I've ever speared a fish, not on camera. They're not all on my channel, but I yeah. have every single footage. And like, if you see my early stuff, you'll, you'll see, I was clearly learning how to spear fish. And one of the first videos, I think I've mixed up a barracuda with a Wahoo and, and just silly things. And like, I'd get really excited over a fish that I wouldn't even look at today. And yeah. And, yeah, um, yeah. and that's completely normal. It's in some ways, I think that's what people like. They like that authenticity and the fact that they're going on a journey with you. And you know, you've you, you never tried to convince people that you're an expert at the start. And like, st slowly over time, you just sort of, you know, you, as you get runs on the board and you start to do more and more, you, you, your knowledge does grow, and so does your skills. And it's evident in your videos for sure. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You like but I do it. like those expert videos, like for an actual Spiro, like, I don't know, like a, some of these guys are just so knowledgeable. You learn so much from their videos. It's, I don't know. Um, if, have you watched Tim McDonald's revitalized YouTube channel? I was just thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. I watched oh, his stuff. Mate. Great. Holy shit. Like there is so much to pick apart in those videos. Like they are like a Spiro's, like if you want a masterclass, like you just watch his videos and you learn so much often by what is not said, but. Well, what is unspoken? And I don't even know if Tim is enjoying giving away as much as he is because uh, some of it, <laughs> like, it just comes out and he, he's, he, he knows what he's given out, but he, he's not real happy with it sometimes. They're good, um, though. They're well-produced. It's an original style, too, I think. I think he's going to um, find himself getting more and more views. He's partnered up with someone really talented. and uh, Clearly, you can it's, see it. It's a, it's a collaborative effort. And I think, like, one of the beauties of um, – collaborations is you know you get the best of kind of everyone and um have you collaborated on any of your stuff or has it always been a solo kind of effort um like with other like like youtubers yeah or just i even got other people editing videos or helping a film that sort of stuff yeah so i have my good friend dieter is um he's a good spiro amazing free diver he's like an, almost an 80 meter diver or something. So he comes wow. with me on a lot of these trips sort of as cameraman. I've got a, um, a Sony camera and he comes with a third person perspective and also like added benefit of kind of having like a dedicated safety as well. Mm. Who's not looking for fish himself. Um, good photographer, good videographer, amazing diver, good friend. And um, so he comes with me a lot of the time. I've got a local guy who's cameraman. He's, he's not much of a diver, but very good cameraman for just B-roll and stuff. And then um, my girlfriend as well. She does some of the editing and some of the filming and the thumbnails as well. Sometimes it's so cool when you're behind a camera because when you're thinking like through the lens and you're looking at a screen, like I'm a really sort of a monotasker, but mm. I can get really good stuff. But when you're trying to make a spearfishing film and you're kind of like the chief person in the middle of the camera and you're thinking about the storyline, you're not really thinking about all the cool B-roll that you need to – to put together a story and all that sort of stuff. So that must be really rewarding having those people capturing that stuff. Even it's sometimes, amazing. Yeah. It's exactly what you said. So you don't have to think about the B-roll and you're trying to spearfish, which is hard enough. And then you're also trying to direct a, a, a film being made. And yeah. it's... Uh, and then spearfish competently as well on top of that. Yeah, like, I do that as well. Because spearing is like such a demanding, um, you know, outworking of your energy like you if you're spearfishing properly you're not thinking about anything else except what you're doing in front of you you know like there's moments on the surface and sure when you're you know talking and doing stuff and organizing and stuff but really like when you're in the moment you're you should be in the moment you're not really like thinking about the film i mean maybe on your way back to the surface you start thinking about it but uh, for me it's different it's it's they're all together for me, ah. um, which honestly, sometimes it's a bad thing, but often it's a really nice thing. Like it adds a whole nother component to spearfishing. Mm. Um, like for instance, like I went on this remote trip with, with Evan Stafford, who, who was on your trip with you. And, yeah. um, and I was looking at his GoPro footage compared to mine. And I, I realized that I've sort of trained myself. Like for instance, after spearing a fish, my head is not going to move. I'm going to track the fish slowly because I know that there's a camera on my forehead and I'm going to want that footage later. Yeah. Whereas Evan is not a YouTuber. He's just a normal person who likes to spearfish. And like, I, it was a very clear difference between his footage and mine. 
and I didn't even realize that I had trained myself to do that, but I'm always sort of in that mode for better or for worse. Yeah. You watch someone's, um, if they've got a head mount on it, it teaches you an awful lot about how you dive. Like, Mm. um, even your head position when you're descending, uh, how fast you're moving on the bottom, why you're spooking the good fish, you know, like if your head's moving too fast, you know, like on a swivel, because you're thinking I've got five seconds of bottom time here, so I'm going to try and look at everything 15 times. <laughs> yeah. Like it, it comes out quick, pretty quick in your GoPro footage, doesn't it? Yeah. And what Ryan Myers always talks about that, right? Oh, it's, does he? Uh, I watch so many of his videos. He says, move slowly. Yeah, yeah. He's He's got a, he's got a really majestic dive style, I reckon. He's just... um. He's very precise sometimes, oh, Ryan. And he's good at teaching others too, which is why I think his YouTube channel does so well. Mm, yes, such a good diver, such a good teacher. I mean, I learned so much from his videos. And so many people do. So many people I talk to, especially because the fish in Hawaii are similar to the fish here, like the moo or the job fish. And... Yeah, 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 yeah. Love it. Tim Ferriss, four-hour work week. Talk to me about that. It's had a bit of an influence on you personally. You're a very entrepreneurial guy. Um Talk to me about how it fits in with what you're doing. Um, I did talk about that in past videos, didn't I? Um, you mentioned it. For, and I'll, yeah, show that, you, that, I'll, show, I'll show you something. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. I, it's been, a, it's been a, um, a massive influence on me and, and, and a lot of levels. And uh, Tim Ferriss' podcast was huge for helping me kind of refine my style and think about my format in the early days. Mm. Um, really enjoy his thoughtful approach and the way he interviews people and, um, and his books, I mean, that book in particular, like it's not only like highly educational in terms of stripping away a lot of bullshit from your secondary school sort of education. Some of the, the hangovers from the, the way we're, you know, brought up through a formal education system, but you know, the, just the life learning and life skills I got out of it were phenomenal. And I, and I knew we shared that. So I thought I would ask you a bit more about it. Yeah, uh, the book changed my life as well. Um, I was reading it. I read it for the first time when I was in New York. And um, there's a line in the book where he says something to the effect of you want to earn in dollars and spend in, I think he said pesos or something. Like He was talking about Argentina or Mexico. But like the idea is basically you want to earn in the Western world and and live in a much less expensive place, whether it's South America or somewhere in Southeast Asia. And, um, and you can live a much better life. I, I don't know what, how ethical that is for the, it, it seems like an unfair quote when you think about someone who maybe was born in Indonesia. Um, but it doesn't make it less true. And, um, makes you grateful. Yeah. Yeah. It makes you grateful. And I think it's a great piece of advice and it's, and it's, I ended up doing it before even this YouTube channel. Like I was, earning in dollars, teaching English, and then living in rupias in Indonesia. And um, and I was able to live comfortably, buy a boat, have a full-time boat captain, all from just working two days a week teaching English online to, to Chinese kids. And um, you could never have done that in the U.S. And it gave me the time to um, to then shift and build up this YouTube channel. And I had all the time in the world to learn how to edit, learn how to do thumbnails and make videos and and build a YouTube channel. And it would have been, I don't know if impossible is the word, but a million times harder if you had to have a normal nine to five or eight to six 
five days a week, six days a week in the US and you just are exhausted afterwards and you have so much less time to uh, to pursue it. And I think that was sort of the point of his book, right? Like, I think he even says something along the lines of you don't want to find this financial freedom just so that you can go drink margaritas on the beach, but so then you can Change learn to play the guitar or write that novel or or do whatever it is. And um, it's it's... I think the book still holds up today, 15 years oh, I, later. I, I think if you're a young single man like or, or woman and you're like early 20s, uh, late teens, read that book. Like it's uh, There's some transformative ideas that just help you unlock some, um, some gross like heuristics that can help you just do life a whole lot better. Um, mm. Unfortunately, I just had four kids and – and uh, <laughs> and you stayed got in Australia, but yeah, well, two stepsons and two natural, but like it does keep you kind of grounded. And I think, uh, you know, the principles hold true even with the book in my life. But the the sort of the the vagabonding, the intentional vagabonding, where you essentially like, you know, not delaying your retirement until you're old, but doing it while you're young and fit and and have a lot of vitality and energy, and you can still do and set some of the same goals as if you were living in a you know in a normal country but you know I, I thought that was an interesting time for your lifestyle and your orientation with this youtube channel getting back to your youtube channel mm. um one question before i want to dig into the some of the the nuts and bolts stuff behind a youtube channel like yours but before there I, you you've sort of disengaged a little bit from the front face of your youtube channel by the sounds of it so that doesn't mean you're getting into the weeds of the comment section what with that decision there, have you was that where you started um, being a bit more free with regards to like making controversial videos and shit? Because like you've you've done a series called Dear Karens. This one's for mm. you, and um, you know you you you'd say and do stuff that deliberately riles up proportions, very small proportions, but they're very vocal minorities in our in our sort of population. Did they coincide? Or was that just a happy coincidence? Um, sorry, can you rephrase that? I'm, I'm not sure what you mean. There's a huge and uh, blocky question that meant nothing as usual. Like you, you were talking about how you sort of disengage from the front face of your YouTube channel. Like you're not paying too much attention to the numbers mm. and I'm assuming not too much attention to the comments. Is that right? Yeah, um, I I feel bad about it. I, I don't ever read the comments or respond to them. And I wish I could because... They're almost all positive, and so, so many people who just want to learn more about maybe living in Indonesia or spearfishing yeah. or diving, or why my ears don't hurt when I go that deep. But um, I just don't know if it's it's just good not for good for health. me. The comments mm. and the numbers aren't good for me. They're good in like in the broader picture, like the viewer retention rate or the average view duration of a video. I know those numbers. I know what the click through rate of the thumbnail is. Um, but to know the exact number of people that end up watching it and I'm elated by the high number or like severely depressed by the low number, like that I wanted to distance myself from. And yeah. the unfortunate like um, reality of doing that means that also like I can't engage with the audience uh, um, okay. in the comments section. But they're all like positive, really. Like even the Dear Karen stuff, like I kind of just – picked on specific negative ones because I thought it would, I don't know. I, I thought I had a funny script in my mind. Yeah. Like I think the best one is dear Karen's part two, but that video ended up getting um, banned from not banned. Like they like sort of, it's complicated, but they censored Sense. it on YouTube. It was going to be, 
it was a one out of 10. And then, so the graph is going up, 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 up. It had an amazing click-through rate, close to like 20%, a good average view duration and tons of comments. And it was one out of 10. But then after a day and a half, it was just like a steep drop in the um, in the graph. And then YouTube sent me an email and said, violates whatever. Community standards. And Which is part of it, you know? YouTube's pretty good, to be fair. TikTok, um, I don't even post there. I've got about 700,000 subscribers there, but I haven't posted in, I think, a year or so, just because every video almost gets gets community guidelines violation and they threaten to delete the channel. And um, and that's sort of what the Dear Karen's video was about, me sort of moaning about TikTok censoring on YouTube and then YouTube censored that video. <sighs> you can't fight them. There's no way of doing it. I don't know what you're supposed to do. You just uh, got to play by the rules. Well, this is part of the problem with being on someone else's platform. And, mm, um, for sure but like it's yeah. good like youtube's pretty fair to be to be fair with youtube they could be worse as far as hunting and fishing goes like yeah. they don't want you to show blood and i get that like fair enough but they'll let you they'll, they'll let you make the video otherwise you see meat eater making their stuff all the time and plenty of people getting a lot of views daniel man deer meat for dinner back to basics like uh they're pretty fair i think okay for the most part well, I and they pay the bills for you too. So, yeah. Did you get in trouble with Pe uh, Peta or Peta or however you say their name? Like, I remember the part three, you specifically mentioned them. Did you get in any blowback from that? Uh, not that I know of. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I thought they probably didn't comment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't know. Ocean Guardian is the world's leading shark deterrent technology. And the great news is they're now partners with the New Stereo Podcast. You can save 10% on the Freedom 7 or Scuba 7 when you shop at Ocean Guardian. Uh, use the code NoobSpero at checkout to save 10%. If you want to go there, easy, super easy, go to noobspero.com forward slash OG. Short for Ocean Guardian, pretty original, eh? Pump in the code NoobSpero and you'll save 10% on your Shark Shield device. Get into it, get amongst it. Ocean Guardian are doing awesome things for Spiro. Are you in the market for a new spear gun? Killshot Spear Guns has got blue water wahoo tuna guns, open track spear guns, enclosed track spear guns, rear handle enclosed tracks. Check them out at killshotspearguns.com. Even better, I've got some good news for you. You can save $30 on any Killshot Spear Gun at killshotspearguns.com. Use the code NOOB. If you're in store, just say crikey, mate, or say Shrek from the Noob Spiro sent you and you'll save $30. Ed Martin at killshotspearguns.com. Check them out. Equalizing problems can be something that derail you. Not today, my friend. Go to freedivingfamily.com. Check out the, either the Frenzel and Advanced Frenzel video or the Mouthful and Deep Frenzel Equalization course at freedivingfamily.com. You can use the code SPIRO to get 20% off any course at freedivingfamily.com. These courses are put together by Adam Stern and a select team of, of, of legends and to help you overcome different issues and help you perform better. And some of them are extremely relevant for freedive spearing. Check it out at freedivingfamily.com. Use the code SPIRO to get 20% off any course. All right, cool. Let's get into some nuts and bolts. So sourcing music, like um, your taste in music is uh, is very clever. My what? Your taste in music mm. with regards to how you use it in your in your um, 
you use it as a device to help tell the story and build mood and intentionality in the videos, I think. How do you source it? Um, well, I've got Epidemic Sound and Artlist, which is sort of just like you pay 5 or $10 a month and it's um, like a, they have a bunch of artists and a bunch of different styles of music you can choose from. And I also like to use classical music um, just because it's already pretty epic and um, and um, it's Where all Where do you free, source that from? Free. Uh, just YouTube. It's all copyright free. Like Beethoven doesn't have a copyright on his stuff anymore. If, if it's been if, if it's been re-recorded by a modern symphony orchestra, though, um, you still don't have to do, do anything. You do that, if like, it's from a, if it's from like the Philharmonic Orchestra. You do, but there's copyright free versions of all that stuff. Um, all those famous songs, you can find it fairly easily. One of my videos recently. Um, <sighs> the channel had, had been in a bit of a slump and I needed money and the end video, I really wanted the song. Oh, Fortuna um, at the end, but I couldn't find a copyright version and I wanted to use it and just say, oh, can, can I say, fuck it. I, I was, I was yeah, like, Oh, fuck it. I don't care about the money. This is the right song for the ending. Yeah. And um, I was convinced otherwise and switched the song out for something that was copyright free. Um, but you can choose any song you want. If you're making a video, especially if it's a starting chant, like a new channel and it's not really making much or anything at all, just put Drake in there or whatever you feel like. It doesn't matter. Any little bit of money is going to go to him. It's not like illegal. You just won't earn the money. But Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Do you think it's yeah. almost worth doing that if you want to grow a channel quickly? Is to totally, use like totally. legit good music and then... Um... It's totally like, worth doing it, even like if you're earning money, like like I I make Bellevue doing it, but like maybe you should make the decision based on what's going to make the best video, not what's yeah. going to make you the most money. Like I kind of regret not putting it at the end. I'm not kind of. I hundred percent regret not putting it at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I remember I spent three days. I made this one video. It's like twenty eight minutes long or something. It's like a I went down to South Australia, dove these uh, Killsby sinkholes and bunch of mm. the ponds down there went and caught some lobster and stuff like that and it was just a cool hangout with my mate cam and we videoed it and we talked through it and it was pretty cool um i did not really like gamify it with regards to making it like high energy or anything like that but it was like a a cool thing from the trip and then it instantly got demonetized and stuff like that and like you know after you sort of publish something you're like well it's the way i want it and I thought I was using all music that was licensed under Creative Commons and all this sort of stuff. And then I was kind of angry because I'd spent three days friggin' editing it. And I kind of thought, well, it probably will earn me like $25 over the over its entire life. Why not, you know, but this, I don't know. It's a funny thing making videos. It's frustrating. It's It seems like there should be a better solution where you can like offer to pay Drake $20 or something rather than having to give him all of your AdSense revenue. And, and I think they're probably trying to figure something. I think they are working on it, but it's complicated with record labels. And to be fair, if I was the first creator of the music, I would not think it's cool if someone just took it and didn't compensate me for it. Like, yeah, it, it's yeah, just yeah. old rules. It's old rules for YouTube, for the internet. It's TV rules for the internet. They need to update them. I think. I think most people want to credit the artists, you know, like I, I genuinely give them credit. I almost feel like with AI, they can, they can automatically gen, generate a, a credit for the artist in a song and then give them a, a portion of it. But yeah, anyway, it's, we're getting into the super, super weeds here with music. Yeah. <laughs> um, monetization. So are you comfortable to talk about monetization with your channel? 
Uh, yeah, sure. We don't have to go into all the numbers and stuff, but um, there's a whole bunch of different ways to monetize a channel. Like a lot of people have these ambitions of making money out of YouTube, but I, I don't think people realize how much is involved in it. Like I can see with your channel, you've, you've got affiliate money in there. You've got the AdSense revenue from the views. Um, you do, you you make your own merch that's up on aquaticapes.com and you, mm. you're doing these sponsors, which I think are affiliate type deals as well. Is that right? Uh, they're not affiliate deals, the sponsors, but yeah. Oh, yeah. So, um, so the easiest way to earn money is just from YouTube or TikTok or whatever. Like they pay you once you reach a certain threshold. I can't remember what the threshold is, but it's not very much because even if it was monetized before that, the earnings would be less than $10 or something. So yeah. um, once you meet the threshold, then you can start earning. And even then it won't be much, but it, YouTube pays you basically half of whatever advertising money they earn from the ads that run at the beginning. Um, they pay you a little differently for the YouTube shorts and TikTok pays you a little differently as well. But um, from what I understood, TikTok just started paying way more closer to, to what YouTube pays for the views, which is interesting. Makes me want to make videos not about spearfishing on there. Um, anyways, that's the first way, easiest way to make money. You don't have to think about it. All you have to do is push a button. Yes, I want to earn money once you get enough views. And um, and don't be discouraged by the threshold because really like you're not missing out on anything before you reach that threshold. You're, you're missing out on well under $100 total. You're better off focusing on just making good videos. Yeah, yeah, you're better off focusing. And that's probably never, that never changes really. Um, that's always the case. And then other than so that- I, th like, I, th I think that threshold is like 2,000 subscribers or something. Something, something like, like that. that. I think it's 1,000 subscribers and 4,000 watch hours for YouTube longs. And then it's something different for shorts. Um, it, 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 don't worry about it, really. Who yeah, someone's yeah. thinking about starting it, you're, <clears throat> yeah. When you meet the threshold, even the money you're going to earn won't be enough to quit your day job on. Um, and then, yeah, you can earn money from selling merch. I sell these hats. I'm wearing one now, but anyways. Um, and that's, uh, I don't know. It, it depends on your merch. Like, like there's different levels. Like, if you have a shirt that says aquatic apes on it, which I do have on there. I've sold almost none, but yeah. the hats are a bit more uh, widely. People are more interested in, I think it has a broader appeal than just, I like to watch aquatic apes, YouTube channel on the front of the shirt. Yeah, um, yeah. And then there's different levels of merch. Like, like the trip that you just did is merch kind of like, it's something you're selling to your audience. Like it's yeah. a, it's a way of monetizing the channel. It's not merch, but, mm. but um, trips and charters. Yeah, and courses. so like some people can earn way more from merch than from YouTube AdSense. I'm not one of them. Um, and then beyond that, the next obvious way to monetize, which you need a bit of a bigger following for, is, is sponsors. And for most YouTubers, that's where you earn most of the money from. Yeah. Yeah, right. Cool. Like uh, someone said back in the day, like, um, you know, like a thousand views on a video is like a dollar or something like a real sort of AdSense revenue. Um, I guess as you grow and you you build a following and stuff, then you, you can kind of get like a, a compound effect, I guess, on that when you add in sponsors and some of the other stuff you're doing. Yeah, the sponsor is like, it's, a, it's called CPM, which is cost per milli, which is basically how much money you earn per thousand views. Um, on YouTube, depending on the type of content you make, it can be anywhere from two US dollars to people who make like specific finance videos, I think they earn like upwards of 20 or $30 per thousand views. Wow. Wild. Um, 
I don't think anyone making spearfishing content is earning a CPM close to that. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. um, but anyways, still good. But uh, but usually the CPM for a sponsor will be many, many, many times higher than what YouTube would pay you. Do you think making intending to do what you've done or reproduce it for other people? Do you think it's a feasible career path for most people? Um, yeah, you can definitely learn how to do it. It's definitely learnable. It's definitely still possible right now. Um, um, I think it, the question is how long it takes you to, to figure it out. Like to be, to, for me, like I, I, I grew quicker than a lot of other channels, but it wasn't even necessarily because I made better videos or it, it really was kind of a, a timing thing. Like I had started on TikTok before they were censoring the videos and I had like 50 or 60 short form vertical TikToks made. And I had a YouTube channel with almost no views, almost no subscribers. And then YouTube came out with YouTube shorts and I was able to post every single day for like two or three months when wow. there was no competition. And it really, really catapulted the channel into getting so many views and so many subscribers. It was just the right time, right place. And it gave me sort of the positive reinforcement I needed to continue making more videos and practice more, yeah. which is the point of what I'm saying is it was easier for me to do that because I had that positive reinforcement of having lucky timing. But I think that's true for everyone. And the other thing I'd say is like, you, you need to sort of come up with your style of content. Um, you can try and copy, make a Daniel Mann video or make a Ryan Myers video or an Aquatic Apes. And they might get views, but like you're never. I don't know how you it's not tell someone to come up with their own video, but like the audience will see that this is something original. I think a great example of that is um, Key West Waterman's videos. It's mm. um, unique style. It's his style of video. He's been doing it for so many years and not stopping. And now his audience is growing like crazy. His, his views are going up and up, and yeah. he seems to have such a dedicated audience. Yeah. I mean, the comments, the number of comments per view on his videos, it's wild. And I think- I, I like his intro. He's unique like, voice. Hello and welcome. I am Aaron Young. And he, <laughs> boys and girls. Hello, boys yeah, and yeah. girls. Yeah, hello, boys and girls. I am Aaron Young. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very, like, distinctive. But he's just such a natural dude. Like, he's a he's a genuinely good human, too. And I think his style captures that as well. And, um, you know, Madeline, the dog, the little boat they head out on, the mangrove area they live in. Um, the spearing, I don't know, it's like you say, authenticity sort of um, speaks to people, you know, like you have yeah, to Yeah, authenticity, be... yeah. And and yeah, you want to seem like it's someone like you like and he has like a, like a nice idyllic life as well. And, yeah, um, he's built it intentionally, a little bit like yourself, which is um, mm. which is what a lot of people, appeals to a lot of people, I think. And um, your videos do that. You're, like, you're capturing Indonesia, you're capturing the vibrant colors and the the people and the, the amazing water and then these, you know, these fantastic moments, which is often the hook to get people into the video. But um, let's let's talk about the hook. Let's talk about storyline, plot, hook, mm. and the other devices you use to sort of get people in on your, your longer videos. Yeah, um, um, I still do, but I used to more study, like, the structure of a story. Um, I highly recommend Masterclass. You can have all these amazing filmmakers and storytellers just tell you how they write a story. It's 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 really incredible. Malcolm Gladwell and Martin Scorsese, just 
um, Aaron Sorkin, just so many amazing storytellers. They just lay it all out for you. And um, that was a big thing that I did at the beginning to study the structure of a story. So the hero's um, journey or what are what are some of the other modes all these days for plot? Yeah, the hero's journey, Dan Carlin's story circle. It's the same idea. Um, there's like... Um, Dan Carlin from Hardcore History. Oh, sorry, not Dan Carlin. Um, Dan Harmon from Rick uh, and Morty. Okay, yep, yep. Although Dan Carlin has his own great story. Oh, he does, though, so. he does. Particularly with narrative story, for sure. I just finished his um, Wrath of the Cons just last oh, week. Mate, oh, mate, so good, so good. Blueprint for Armageddon is also sick. Really good. Is it? It's First World War. Out. Yeah. First it, World War. Yeah, I tell you what, I don't know. When you listen to Dan Carlin and he's like, I'm not a historian, and then you you think about all the shit history teachers you had at school and you're like, jeepers, how did you guys make this stuff so boring? Like he he just almost like can't make it boring. Like I listened to Wrath of the Khans <laughs> is like 18 hours on, you know, Genghis Khan and Kublai, you know, like the the the, the sort of the three generations of it. Like it's it's crazy. It's so interesting. He is such a historian. That's not true when he says that. Yeah, yeah I know. not a historian. Come on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like when Joe Rogan says he's a moron. It's like, yeah, maybe sometimes, man, but he's still yeah. pretty. He's pretty clever too, and otherwise as well. But anyway, um, so you you studied sort of classical filmmaking from classical filmmakers on Masterclass. You also talked about Casey Neistat, which um Daniel Mann also talked about a little bit as being one of his inspirations. Mm. Um, and one of your takeaways, I think you said, was like just like making stuff, continuing to make stuff. And once you sort of do the work, you, you learn as you go. Yeah, it's all about practice. And like, like you get all forms, of, not you, I get all forms of creative procrastination that all come from like the fear of maybe making a bad video. Like even right now, I haven't, I've been sitting on a couple of videos for months now. And um, I say, oh, it's because of this or because of that. But the real reason is I, there's a, for me, and and I think a lot of people, a fear of creating and you have to get over that fear to get better. And like some videos will be worse, some videos will be better, but if you keep practicing over time, the, the trajectory is going to be positive rather than negative, even though some, you'll inevitably create some bad stuff. But yeah, there's so many good people to draw inspiration from. I love Daniel Mann's videos. Like, when I was first starting to spearfish, I was watching every single one. Before I'd ever speared, I was watching his videos. I bought your book, The 99 Tips. On, oh, wow. Um, um, so I remember right after I left Thailand, I was coming here because I wanted to learn how to spearfish. You can't spearfish in Koh Tao where I was. Yep. And uh, and I was reading your book on the way over here. Oh, wow. Um, and, and, tips and watching Danny Mann's videos. So yeah, there's inspiration from all over the place. And yeah. um, I think it's important to like maybe emulate things that you like, but if you try and like, like go to Norway and copy Daniel Mann's Norway video, like too similarly, the audience is going to know. And I don't know if it's the way to succeed or even, um, get better. I think that like, you need to pick and choose specific things and, and find your own voice. And that's the best way to stand out. You've got a great voice. Like you obviously, you like, you've got this Connecticut, you know, New York accent, you're in Indonesia, um, and you're a foreigner there, it kind of gives you like, you you know, when you're high on openness, I think, and you're in those sort of a different context too, it kind of lends to making a very interesting and appealing context. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And then your voice, you, your 
tone of voice when you narrate a video is very compelling. Like it's it's natural, but it's also got great ebb and flow. A lot of people, when they tell a story, believe they're being inauthentic by using tone, like letting their energy carry in their voice, you know. But like the most interesting people that have ever been around, like Steve Irwin, you know, like I swear that if that guy sold shoes, he would sell more shoes than anyone else on the planet because <laughs> his passion is evident, you know. And I, do you think that selling suits and selling in general gave you a set of skills for being able to do that? Um, I used to cold call when I was selling suits. So I would call lawyers or people like that who bought suits and um, I hated doing it. It was yeah. horrible. It's hard. But anyways, there was like a, a thing when you would cold call, like if you look up how to successfully cold call, there's like, it's usually real estate courses and stuff. But like one thing they say is smile and dial. So like when you're speaking on the phone, you're saying it like you, maybe you can hear my tone of voice change right yeah, now because yeah, I'm yeah. smiling. Yeah. And um, so I do that when I'm recording. I'm standing up. I'm not sitting down. I'm smiling. And um, ah. I'll often read the script through one time before on on microphone recording with my headphones on. One time, just so I can yeah, see yeah. the structure of a sentence as it's hear the structure as it's coming out of my mouth, and you know which words to emphasize, where to pause, where to do this and that, and you're more hyped up and warmed up. And then the next time around, you're smiling, you're energetic, you're standing up, and um, so do you. It's part of you, it. Like, do I you write? Do you write your script, record it, and then cut your video to the script, or do you do I, it the other way around? No, 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 no. I write my script. Um, I watch all the clips completely through pretty much. And then as I'm watching them, I'll take notes and um, sort of write kind of a rough thing or things I want to write about during that process. And then I sit down and write the script start to end with the words I'm going to say, whether there's a roll where I'm speaking to the camera, which is rare, but there are some. And um, and then I write the corresponding clips in like a, a row next to that, what I want to have the B-roll going on. Wow, very cool. And before you've written your script, do you already have – first of all, can you explain what a hook is? Um, you, a hook, like the beginning of a video. Yeah, so you want something compelling to captivate the audience in order to watch through to the end. Is that kind of the gist of it? Yeah, you want you want to convince the, the audience that, like, the video they clipped on is going to be cool. I think a great example is, like – um, Batman two with the Joker, like that opening scene with the bank, like Joker robbing the bank. Like it doesn't actually really have much to do with the story, except for introducing the type of person the Joker is. But like no one who watched that first 15 minutes is then thinking like, Oh, this video is going to suck. Like, what did I, why did I come see Batman? Everyone is going to be like, Whoa, I can't wait to. So you want like a version of that for YouTube, yeah. you know, you want it to be cool. You want the person like, like, I don't know. If, I don't know if it's better, but it is the reality of, of the way people consume videos, especially on YouTube and TikToks kind of making it worse or just more true. Like you click the video and then if you're on your phone, I bet you more than half the people are they've already minimized the video to be on the bottom of their phone and they're already scrolling to look at other thumbnails. Um, I bet you it's the majority. I don't know what, if there's a statistic on that, but um, you, it just needs to be more exciting than every other potential option. Not that I do it perfectly, but it's something to keep in mind when you start the video. No, no, Having good. said that, it's not always true because like if you have an audience that's, that's, that really 
likes you and knows you as a person and loves your content, they're going to sit through whatever intro because they're invested in you already. Like a good example is Casey Neistat. Like no matter what his intro is, I'm going to watch his entire video through. And um, so <laughs> that so, takes so longer to do. That Building an audience like that takes a much longer time than to focus on the intro and make it exciting. It's easier when people know you, like, and then they, because then they, they let you, they let you be human. It's like that. They, they, they have a level of tolerance for you, you, you stupid human stuff. You know, like I've said and done, done some of the dumbest stuff, but if people have listened to like four or five hours of me, then they have a level of tolerance for my stupidity, you know, and it's there and it comes out all the time. I think with YouTube being such a, it's such an unforgiving format sometimes. Like, you know, it, once you've watched three or four of someone's videos, you get like that. You start to go, oh, this dude's cool, you know. I can want to watch what he's doing, you know. Mm. Um, and and that kind of you like your core crew. But a lot of the people, you know, they um, they're just in and out, you know. Like they're sort of the flavor of the moment. It's there's not a loyalty there. They you don't have reciprocity. They're just watching you purely for entertainment. That's mm. um. That'd be kind of grating, I think, sometimes, particularly with yeah. YouTube. Yeah, um, and I think it's turning. YouTube is kind of turning more into that. Um, it's it's becoming so much more competitive, and and people are getting better at making a, a spectacle intro, and um, and it kind of just is what it is. Like, you can still have your core audience, you can still build that, but I think people are you're just competing with like real production teams and real script writers and storytellers now. And, and yeah. it seems like it's going to continue in that direction. Uh, yeah. The agile sort of one man bands though, like they do have their own compelling um, thing to them as well. And like your channel definitely captures that, even though you've got some help these days. Um, ongoing learning. Do you like, uh, how do you sort of, like I know, like when I run a, a spearfishing course or when I, I recently ran this charter, like a massive thing for me is doing a debrief and it's almost like a semi-formal thing where I really try and dial in on like what do we do well, what can we, how can we amplify this next time, what, where did we fall short and how can we fix some of those things and make it way better for next time. And there's something about like, you know, someone that's done something for five years, if they've been through any sort of intentional process to get better – Generally, they have got better. I mean, maintaining the same enthusiasm and interest you have at the start at the end of five years might be a different thing. But how do you do that for yourself? Mm, for spearfishing or making videos? Well, let's start with spearing and then we'll come back to videos. Um, yeah, for spearing, um, the best way to learn, especially for me, I, probably for everybody, is just going with people who are better than you, speaking with people who are better than you, and um, even just like, like if I'm with a guy who's like really good, I'll, I'll often just like kind of watch him and just, you just see the way that they do it, the way that they duck dive, what they're doing on their way down, whether they're looking, whether they're just got their chin chuck, chin tucked and they're going right to the bottom. Um, and a, a great way is also watching like people's YouTube videos of good Spiros, like Tim McDonald or Ryan Myers, just like, like when you're watching it, remember that there's a camera on their head and those are their movements. I think that's a great way of learning. Um, um, but yeah, as far as like consuming learning content for spearfishing, I don't really do that. Although I, I probably could and should. Um, 
it becomes a time and opportunity cost thing as much as anything, you know. Like um, a lot of people listen to the podcast or they watch YouTube channels because they are away from the ocean of, and sometimes they just want to maintain the high levels of froth and think about different things that are going to improve their game when they do get to hit the water. It's it's really like um, it's a completely sort of personal choice, I think. Mm, yeah. And really, it's like everything, right? Time doing it is the best teacher. Yeah, but intentionality plus time doing something is completely different than just, I read this wicked quote the other day. It was something about like, you know, like just sort of doing something and not really being intentional about improving. Well, you, you'll still improve, but the results like are amplified enormously when you have any form of intentionality about learning and doing something ongoing with filmmaking what's your process these days because sometimes like you know when you're brand new you're like really like loaded on getting better and then you know you sort of fall off the wagon you know after you've been doing it for so long and it kind of becomes just sort of background stuff yeah um in an ideal world i think if you spend like 80 percent of the time doing it and practicing and maybe 20 percent of the time like learning i think that's a really powerful combination and um i'm pretty good about learning i still watch these different master classes i have different books on screenwriting and um like i have like a little notebook about storytelling which sometimes i'm really into it and i take a lot of notes and write things down sometimes i don't um but um there's so much so many resources, I guess, for whatever you want to learn, but for, let's say, storytelling or filmmaking, like never before has there been all of these experts and like amazing storytellers just breaking it down for you and the way that they do it. And they all do it a little bit differently. And um, it also serves as like a big inspiration. You get fired up to go to go and create something after listening to these guys and girls talk about yeah. how they do it. It's um it's amazing. Another thing I, I, I don't do this now. I probably still should, but I used to, um, I would download a video that I really liked and, um, I would put it into final cut pro my editing software. And, um, and, um, then I would cut it clip by clip where the editor cut it. And I'd sort of just try to get an understanding of where they cut. And then you can think about why they cut there and you just sort of see what their timeline might have looked like. And um, I think that's a great tool for learning how to edit videos as well. It's free. Nice. If your buddy had a blackout on your next beer fishing trip, think, what would the outcome of that be? Do you know how to revive someone from a blackout? Would you even be in a position to do something about it? Or would you be diving, chasing after a fish as your buddy sinks down to the bottom of the ocean? Do you know where most blackouts happen? Do you know what you can do to minimize your risk of having a blackout? My name is Ted Hardy, and I'm the founder of freedivingsafety.com. In my free online course, you will learn the truth about shallow water blackout, the myth of I don't push myself, I know my limits, I'm in tune with my body, how to minimize your risk of having a blackout, and most importantly, how to save your buddy's life if they have one. Visit freedivingsafety.com to sign up for your free course today. Dive safe out there. It's just not even that hard. Freediving for Spearfishers at howtofreedive.com will help you to extend your breath hold, understand your body better, and put you in a better position when you actually get to go out spearfishing. This program 
is not for noobs, as this program is for people who have some diving under their belts and understand some basic spearfishing safety, but it's perfect for spearos who want a guided, easy to follow and complete program with videos, a clear process and a set goal. The five minute freediver works. Get started for free and see if it's for you at howtofreedive.com. There's a tester there. Use the code NOOBSPEARO, N-O-O-B-S-P-E-A-R-O to save some money if you do decide to purchase. Check it out at howtofreedive.com. Freediving for spearfishers, a fantastic way to prepare, especially if you've got a big trip coming up. Get to that five minute mark and it does translate to your diving at howtofreedive.com. Last question on YouTube. Um, What's kind of two questions in one? Um, file management, editing software. Um, walk us through that. What's your sort of process for it all? Ugh, I wouldn't, I'm not in a position to give advice on file management. <laughs> <laughs> you should see how many hard drives I have. It's it's a mess. Yeah. Um, when you find someone who knows how, let me know. And I want to listen to, to them talk about it. I, I don't know, honestly. Daniel Mann's pretty good. I, um, he like double backs everything up. He's got, I think, two 10 or 20 terabyte drives with, um, what's the super fast? SSD. Thunder- oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. But even with drives too, is it Thunderbolt that's like near instantaneous for large files? I don't know. Oh, Something. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I definitely back up everything. I have two two of all my hard drives. The rule of thumb, they say you're supposed to have, it's like a three, two, one rule. Have it stored on three locations two of them physical, one of them in the cloud or one of them in a different location in case there's a fire. It's something like that. Um, I basically just have two of all my hard drives and um, within the hard drives, it's a mess. So (laughs) that's, that's where my organization ends. Yeah. Do what, so what do you label them according to trip and date or um, have you got like topical type files or is it just everything? Yeah, it'll be like trip and date. Um, not date. It'll be like trip, like what's like like the shark attack video I think you mentioned earlier. Like that file is called shark attack doggy or something. And um, so right. if I want to find footage from that, I'll guess which hard drive it is, whether it's hard drive one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, or eight. And if it's <laughs> not that one, then I just keep checking each one and type in shark attack doggy. It's <laughs> not the right way, not the right way to do it. <laughs> Oh, well, I would almost like watch a specific training video on that then. Like, if that I was should. Gonna, yeah. Um, no, that's cool, man. Love your honesty. I think um, that's one of the cool things about your channel, too, is like um, people appreciate like the human aspects sometimes to the videos. And I think like with your with your channel, like you, you are yourself. Like, there's, you know, you lose fish, you, you have mistakes, you have tangles, you, um, you know, the boat fails, you know, it gets flooded, the police come, you know, there's all that sort of stuff in your videos and it's, uh, I mean, it adds drama to it, but it's also a level of honesty and authenticity and humility that comes with, with sharing the fuck-ups as much as anything else. So. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. It's, um, <clears throat> on one hand, you don't want to make spearfishing look like you're wounding a bunch of animals. And like a channel like mine, like a lot of the people don't spearfish and it could tarnish it but on the other hand like that is part of spearfishing like like everybody who starts chasing wahoo is gonna like wound them and place bad shot nobody's gonna start chasing wahoo and wait for them to be two and a half two meters away from them and place a headshot every time yeah it is the reality of it and like but i do sometimes wonder if it's a misrepresentation 
of spearfishing. So it's it's like, and on the yeah. other hand, I don't know if people love listening to um, someone who's so amazed, like, let's use the Batman analogy again. Imagine Batman meets the Joker for the first time, punches him and knocks him out, puts him in jail. And then he goes and meets Two-Face, punches him, knocks him out, puts him in jail, and the movie's over. Like, yeah. it's yeah, not yeah, really... Batman. There's no drama there, you know. Like, ah, there's no struggle. tension. Yeah, there's no tension. And and I think that, you know the hero's journey captures that. It's like you you know like, and life itself is like that. You know, like adversity is part of what makes us who we are, and it makes a film what it is, and things like that. Like, there has to be struggle, suffering to make things almost triumphant and beautiful. It's like you have to have that sort of that juxtaposition, that that contrast, in order to make things, I don't know, interesting, captivating. And you know, like. The best fish I ever got was a, a 60 kilo doggy. It was a perfect headshot. And um, I had like a whole doggy series from last year. I made, I think it might've been five videos. And that one got the fewest amount of views, the best fish, like, like everything went perfectly. Like people want to see when I spear a little one and then look to the left and see a giant one. And then I'm like, oh, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it's funnier. It's, I get it. It's 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 a more interesting story than like I went down and did this perfectly, and that's what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> Not to say you should do stupid things to make the video better, but like include them when you inevitably do do stupid things. At least that's yeah. what I do. You got to be able to laugh at yourself, which is great. Um, awesome. You had a friend had shallow water blackout. I want to hear about this. What happened? And um, I mean, what did you guys learn from it? I mean, did it? Yeah, well, tell me, please share the story. Yeah. Um, so um, this was uh, in October or November of last year. We were on a liveaboard trip. And um, this guy, I hadn't met him before the trip, but um, we became friends for the trip. It was like 10 days or something. We were going after doggies. And um, it was the last day of the trip. And, um, and I, I was on the boat with my buddy. And we were sort of looking at the people spearfishing. We didn't feel like going that morning. And um, I saw a float sort of tombstoning on the surface. And um, I just said to my buddy, like, oh, look, it looks like someone's got something. And then we continued chatting for another 10 minutes or so. And um, then I looked back out there again, and the float was still tombstoning in that same in that same spot. And then I said to him, like, oh, I guess I guess they got tangled or something. Um, maybe just like a fish reefed up or something. And, uh, and then another five minutes later, and then you hear a lot of commotion on the walkie talkies and, and, um, and this guy who at that point we like, we were friends. We had spent the last past 10 days living together on the boat and he had blacked out and, and he ended up dying and, um, like we spent an hour and a half trying to do CPR and resuscitate him. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm a free diving instructor and I, I wasn't in the water at the time, but if I was, I would not have been doing the proper one up, one down safety that you're taught in a free diving course. Um, they weren't doing that. Obviously he was in there with, two of his friends from home and two of my good friends were both amazing divers. They were all in the same area of the reef. So like when someone says don't dive alone, they don't mean like go out with your buddies. 
like when someone says never dive alone, what they mean is you're supposed to do a proper one up, one down um, safety. Like you're taught, you're, you're an instructor as well, aren't you, Shrek? Yeah. Like, yeah. like you're taught in a free diving course. And, um, and this was sort of just what happens when you don't do that. And I don't know, it's, it's, when I first started spearing, I was perfect about it because I was an instructor before I ever speared fish. And so I would go out with other friends of mine. They were also instructors and it was 100% perfect one up, one down buddy system. You're looking at your friend the whole time. You wait for them to surface. You see them do the recovery breaths and then it's your time to breathe up and prepare to die and they'll dive, excuse me, 40 and slip, I guess, um, prepare to dive and, um, and then they'll do the same thing for you. And then slowly for me over time that those limits were pushed. And then like a couple of years later, you're not really safetying each other at all. Like mm -hmm. you're in the general vicinity. You might see your buddy surface. You might not, doesn't really matter. And, um, I don't know. It was a big lesson learned of, of the things that can happen. And it's hard because it's hard to do a perfect safety, especially when you're going after dog tooth tuna and the currents are ripping. It's white water. Sometimes like it's rapids. You each have a 30 meter float line with two floats and a giant spear gun in your hands. It's almost impossible to do a proper safety without getting your stuff tangled up unless you share the same gun, which um, which Evan and I were actually doing on this last trip for a lot of it, which um, if you only have one spear gun, then you're always doing a perfect safety because you want to be near your buddy when he surfaces so that you could dive. Um, but having said that, like you run the risk of missing out on opportunities on other fish and maybe that's just the way to do it. I don't know. Um, but I do know that if, a proper safety was done in that moment, then this guy wouldn't have blacked out and ended up dying. Mm. Um, What's it changed for you? Oh, it's really changed my spearfishing. Um, I've, I've honestly gone spearfishing way less since then. Um, it's always in my mind, like even sometimes now, but before, like I would dive down afterwards and like on my way down like it like flashbacks of trying to resuscitate this guy which is not good for your relaxation on your way down for a dive and probably not good mentally either um but you know i'm just a lot more careful now like like there was like on that very same trip like i was pushing it like you the doggies were deeper on this trip like you had to go past 25 meters to see them most of the time. And, um, and I mean, it takes you 30 seconds to get down there, 30 seconds to get back up and maybe you're down there for 30 seconds. That's already kind of a long dive. Like, and then, it is, it is and, when you add, huh? even when you're experienced, if you add anything else into that recipe, into that, and you add anything else and you're diving with what's essentially a tree trunk in your hand, the, the giant gun. It's, 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 um, it, it was a wake-up call as, like, you can't, like, yeah, it was a wake-up call. Like, and and it's so sad that this guy is such a nice guy, experienced guy. He had a spearfishing charter. That was his job. Like, it wasn't like he was learning how to do it. And um, do, you, do you almost, like, like, I know for me, like, you know, I, I was in a correctional environment for a while, and my parents were both ex-military. 
And one of the things I kind of got out of it when I went back, when I went into corrections was it almost revitalized some of the way I was brought up. This extremely military way of doing things when it comes to high-risk environments. And it means precise communication, precise rules, so you, you, you reduce the gray area so that people mm. are safe and you're all, you're all on the same page. This team diving where you're in these sort of fairly extreme environments, right? You're diving in current, big down currents, depth, chasing big fish with big guns. It almost seems to warrant this kind of this militaristic, systematic type way of doing things. Would would you agree with that? Does it pull the fun out of it? Like you say, you, you do sometimes seem to miss some opportunities. Is that something you can see yourself adopting more of in this situation? So it's like one guy has your, your big blue water cannon, one guy's got a real gun for a backup shot, uh, and then maybe one, if you're working in a three-man team, the other person does burly and whatever, or flasher, and then you sort of, you, you rotate through, or is that is that less like ivory tower type thinking? It's what, it's what should be done. Like, it should be a teamwork thing. The thing is, like, unless it's a special conditions day, like, like, there's a bomby or a small island, and then the current's going one direction towards the island or bomby. And then at the very tip is the pressure point. There's probably like a big boulder 30 meters deep or something. And even if the current's only going a couple of knots, you get one dive on that one spot. You have to dive, time it perfectly. Otherwise, like you really have to hit that specific pressure point if you want to see the school without getting lucky. Like you, and um, so, so my point is like, if you are with your buddies and each of you has a gun and you space yourselves out 15 meters between each other, everybody gets a shot at that pressure point. Whereas if you do what you just described, then one person does, and then you have to get back on the boat, drive up current, 20 minutes later, you try again. Yeah. That's not to say it's wrong, but that's to say why people slowly just say, ah, oh, it'll be all right. And um, Yeah, I get it. I get it. And a lot of this, a lot of the our buddy systems fall apart in this situation. And you know, when freediving instructors teach Spiros, this is what I worry about. It's um, it's it sounds like ivory tower line diving type scenarios, and it's it's not attached to the hunting world because a lot of our diving off where I am off Brisbane here, it's the same. We're doing drift lines, are quite precise drift lines. There's one one main pressure point maybe on that drift line, and then it's everyone hopping back on the boat and then heading back up current. And uh, buddy diving in these situations can become like I can see why a lot of people abandon it but I I don't know man like if I'm diving past 25 meters and I'm in current I, I really want someone watching me on the surface like I even if it means reducing and doing a two-man team or something but I, I can see why like I've, I've we've done it before too like three of us all hitting the front edge of the pressure point we're all down there at the same time um, but yeah jeepers it's, uh, it's rugged man yeah it's um so when this happened, there was actually no current. It was slack tied. It's not like he was caught down current. And there weren't necessarily doggies around. There was a, a Maori sea perch on the end of his spear. So he was going after reef fish, which, I mean, they can be a smart fish as well. So like, I mean, they're arguably harder to spear than a doggy. Challenge for a doggy, I think, is more after you pull the trigger a lot of the time. Anyways, um, um, I think that the most dangerous moment is like there's a little bit of current, not a lot, but it's just pushing you in a direction. And you go down whatever you're comfortable at. Let's say it's 20 meters and 
like maybe there's just a tiniest bit of down current, but you don't know it. Like when there's a lot of down current, it's really obvious. And like, you're so scared. There's no way you're going to go past X number of meters. It's so obvious there's down current. You're probably not even going to dive. But when there's a little bit, you don't really know it. And let's say like you're at 20 meters where you're comfortable at. And then you see biggest dog you've ever seen in your life in the distance. And then you just wait like an extra 10 seconds. And there's a tiny bit of down current. So you're actually 24 meters deep rather than 20. But you don't know it because you thought you were at 20. That's how many kicks usually get you down to 20. And then just wait 10 more seconds because it is a 100 kilo doggy you're looking at. You may never see one again in your life. And then you spear it or don't spear it. And then when you're coming back up, you're four meters deeper than you thought you would. So maybe you need 16 kicks rather than 13 kicks to get back up. And there's a bit of down current. So actually you need 18 kicks and you just speared a hundred kilo doggy. So your heart's racing and you're using more rocks. And then I think that's the dangerous situation. And like, that's going to be a temptation for any person on earth to, to not miss up. And it's okay if you have a proper safety, or at least it's more okay. Um, and I think I, it would take an incredible amount of mental strength or fortitude to, uh, like, like not fall for that trap in that specific sit. That's what I think is the most dangerous situation chasing doggies with these down cards basically is my point. Do you think there's an opportunity here? Like, you know, like you're talking about your camera buddy, right? He's an 80 meter freediver. He's filming you sometimes these days. And, and then he's a, he's double up as your safety as well. Mm. There's it almost seems like there's opportunity for that. Like, um, you're out on these foreign, you're you're on a charter in remote waters in a in a country that's not your own. You'd almost pay for peace of mind to have someone follow you. Um, it'd be a bonus that they're filming, but really their primary job would just be looking after you. I mean, yeah, they're not there to spear fish; they're being paid to look after you and and film. It's like it sounds like a really sweet and a smart idea, particularly if you're older, you got kids, and you, you know, you. If you, particularly if you're going diving with people that you don't really know and trust, I think it's a great if you can afford it. There's a lot of cameramen out there, great divers who would love to come on a trip for free, you know. Like, I think for sure that's and that's one of the benefits of like going with, with my buddy Dieter, you know, like and yeah, like I don't know. And and even now, after that happened, like diving alone. When I say alone, I mean not with a proper one-up, one-down safety. It almost still seems inevitable unless, like, you really have your boys that they go with you on every single trip and you really have a thing dialed in. Um, and even then, like, like for instance, there's fads here in Bali, like tons of fads. You don't need a safety at the fads. Really, you don't. Like, mm. you can go to five meters to Spira Wahoo or a Rainbow Runner and you're not going to black out. Um, can you go to 10 meters? Can you go to 13? Can you go to 15? Like, and then it's just like, where does it end? And, and, you know, there's so many amazing divers. I know like some of like the deepest divers in the world, like they spearfish very regularly without a safety all the time. And they're comfortable with it. They seem to confident that they can manage that risk. And Maybe they can. I, I and I guess they can. They have so far for decades, and well, um, it's their choice. It's it's everyone's choice. 
the the crap thing I think is where like you have people with the best intentions in the world and they and they they are good at looking after people, but then they have a series of like shit dive buddies, like where and I, you know like I, I'm not saying I'm a perfect dive buddy or anything like that. I, I'm I'm definitely not. I'm definitely like a guy that sometimes like to swim off by myself and have a spearing session, particularly after your own courses and stuff. It's almost like you're just happy to get out there and be solo. But like I've I've had many times where you know like I chase someone because we were supposed to be buddies. I watch them through their whole dive, and then I have my dive and I come back up and they're a hundred meters away, and then I chase yeah. after them. And you know, and you and you, you know, how long do you? persist with that before you just go well i'm diving by myself anyway might as well just enjoy it you know yeah and, um I, I i worry about those people because it's like you you almost infect other people with your poor behaviors because because you don't like to watch people because you can't be bothered or the hey look there's something shiny over there you know you you start to infect the other people around you it's almost like I don't know. I, I, I like to think like if you're diving with the same group of guys and you're all, you know, savage friggin' experienced guys or whatever and girls and you, you're diving 20 to 25 meters and that's your bread and butter. Um, or, or so, sorry, maybe you're a 10 to 15 meters diving and you're doing that all the time with these people and then the next day you're all out and you're starting to do 20 meters and you definitely want to tighten those systems up and think like that. I think you do have to frame risk up. Like you're saying, if you're diving the fads, it's real low risk, easy diving, and you're more effective at sort of just keeping an eye on each other, but you're at a distance. Like, I don't know, you just sort of work these things out as you go, don't you? Yeah, I yeah, I guess you do. I mean, I know what you're talking about. Like, you dive with someone, I've had it be like, all right, we're going to do a proper buddy system. I do my dive. I come up. He's there. He's watching me. And then he starts swimming in the opposite direction of the pressure point. I'm thinking like, you're going to make me follow you all the way freaking over there. There's no, like, yeah. that's not where they are. Yep. And, and that happens too. You, I guess you just have to, you not, I guess you do have to just do that, especially because he's expecting you in that moment. But well, it's frustrating. I think it's too, it's nice when like, if I'm in the water with someone that's better than me, I really want to know what their plan is. I'm just going to go along with it. Whether it's my mm. turn to dive or not, or theirs. There's kind of like a, like people like diving with humble people. Like if I came to Indo and I'm diving with you, I'm going, hey man, what's the plan? Like mm. I'm going to trust Lenny because Len this is Lenny's neck of the woods and Lenny knows how to spear. I'm going to do what Lenny says. And if I have a different idea, I'm going to say, hey Lenny, I reckon over there might be really shit hot because of this reason. But otherwise I'm pretty much just going to like lean on your experience and wisdom in that area. And uh, when it's my turn to dive, I'm going to hope you're going to follow me and watch me, but I'm going to stick to what the plan that you've laid out unless I've got a better idea and then I'm going to communicate that to you. I, I think that's kind of a good thing. I like it when I'm with an inexperienced person. Like I dive with my brother-in-law a lot lately. You know, he's mm. flat out 10 meter diving. So we we stick to the shallows, but he wants to know where I want to go and where, where he thinks we're going to find fish. Likewise, when I'm heading out with some you know, Epic Spiro, like Trevor Kitchen or something like that. I'm going to say, hey, Trevor, what's the plan? I'm, I'm just going to do what Trevor says because I'm going to I'm going to have more opportunities because he knows exactly where to go and what to do. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think sometimes – but sometimes there's not an acknowledgement of that. It's like some people don't have an awareness. Like they think they know, but they – you know, like you say, they swim away from the pressure point and annoying shit like that. It's like well, we're not going to shoot any fish now. It's very, <laughs> it's very frustrating. So Yeah. It's – um. Big convo, Lenny. Big convo. Yeah, big convo. There's, I don't know, that it seems like there's some element of inevitability, like like spearfishing is inherently dangerous. 
But like, really, if you have a proper buddy system, one up, one down, that level of risk is mitigated by so, so, so many times. You've never heard of a story of someone with a proper buddy system blacking out and dying. Yeah. Like, I'm, I mean, I guess this is one famous example of that free diver, Nick Bevioli, but even that was like a fringe specific thing. Like, like it's always when things go wrong, you're doing something a bit more extreme. You're, this didn't happen or. Yeah. 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 And shit happens, man. We're in an uncontrolled, wild environment and uh, our bodies can be weird and wonderful things in terms of how our physiology changes from day to day and, you know, all of this stuff comes into play. Um, I hear what you're saying. I like, I love the the buddy system, uh, especially buddy systems that work. Uh, mm. It means you, you know, you catch more fish, you have more fun as well. But um, And, you know, the danger is part of the appeal, if we're being honest. Like, the fact that it's extreme is what makes it exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Right. That, that's like, it looks cool to people. That's why they want to start spearfishing because it looks so cool. You could go that deep. 100%. And that's why your YouTube channel was rocking out. What do we say? 2.31 2. million subscribers. Well done, Lenny. Um, Aquatic Apes, everyone. Check it out, aquaticapes.com. Um, you've got a fantastic. I wanted to head on out and ask you a couple of quick questions, but you've got a fantastic T-shirt design with uh, it's take it's a takeoff of the Jaws T-shirt. What, what was the inspiration for that? Uh, I don't know what the inspiration was, but I've only sold one, so it's not that fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I reckon like noobspirit.com, I've got a couple of rad T-shirt designs as well. The beauty of things these days is like it's a uh, made on demand. So like I might make 50 cents from the sale of a t-shirt and people are like, what, it's 40 bucks. But it's like at least I don't have to stock the stuff because um, like you say, man, selling it sometimes can be, it's a real weird thing, eh? Like um, Spiro's, so many of us just shop at like Target or something and we, we're not really buying or wearing our, our own stuff, you know, Spiro stuff. Yeah, yeah. I do the print on demand as well. It's, um, yeah, it seems like a lot of work. For and a lot of risk to stock it and then have to ship it worldwide. Um, yeah, I wonder I how I, Dan Mann's going. He's got diveeverywhere.com. I wonder how he's going with his t shirt sales. Because I, I gotta say, mine aren't very crash hot either. Yeah, my shirts don't sell. I, I sell a good amount of these hats with um, with the fit. It's like a polo style cap, but instead of the polo logo, it's like a embroidered fish. Yeah, I've a bunch seen of different it. species. We sell a good amount, but again, like. Maybe it's enough to warrant stocking it, but I still don't want to. Nah. Like, it's, yeah. it sounds like so much work. Yeah, I, I started stocking stuff. I, I bought, um, I think, 80 of these T-shirts and 20 hoodies or something. Like, maybe I've sold, like, 15 or 20 of them and, like, not even really making much money out of it. It's just like, well, I definitely don't, you know, don't want to be packing packages by myself. It's just like, you know, we're trying to make this thing a legit you know, lifestyle, it's like um, whatever you can do to help grow and keep it going, I guess. And, um, yeah, you're obviously passionate about making videos, man. So that's um, it's doing what it does, I guess. Yeah, yeah, the videos, I mean, as far as earning money, I think the majority of people earn more from YouTube or from a sponsorship if you can get one. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I hear of people who sell a lot of merch. I hear, I hear of people who earn more from merch than they do from AdSense. I saw uh, Ryan Myers did a drop of merch a couple of months ago. I saw on his Instagram story he had just a 
pile of packages ready to go out. Like I'll must have on. been fifty or eight, like so many. Good so, on. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I hear people's success. So I just, I want to emulate it, but uh, good on them anyway. This podcast is brought to you by aqualite.com.au. This is the best solution bar none for staying hydrated in the ocean. If you're a Spiro, it's an absolute no-brainer. It's a game changer. If you're doing extended trips and the cramp starts to set in and uh, the old body's telling you, hey, that's enough, just get hydrated and it will save you a whole heap of woe. It's a groundbreaking product that can help you to stay hydrated. It's got low sugar. It's less acidic than other options on the market. It's rapid absorption, help you to maintain performance. Dehydration of just one to 2% can affect your mental and physical performance by up to six or 7%. And as when you're spearfishing, you can tell when dehydration is starting to affect you because the equalization goes out the window. Get Aqualite at aqualite.com.au. It's scientific rehydration that Spiro's know and trust. I know because one works there and that's why we've set up this discount code for you, 10% off. When you use the code NoobSpiro at aqualite.com.au. Check it out. Australian-made hydration products tailored for Spiros and a whole bunch of other people that suffer from dehydration too. But check it out at aqualite.com.au. Use the code NoobSpiro to save 10%. Oldmanblue.com.au. You can't cheat experience. You can't fake passion. And damn, Old Man Blue can make gear that will last and stand the test of time. Check it out at Old Man Blue Dive on Instagram. Mate, three quick questions. Um, cool. Best, what is the best resource you believe for spearfishing? Can be Ooh. anything. In person course can be book, podcast, Noob Spirit podcast. Maybe I don't know. Just whatever you think. Yeah, the Noob Spirit podcast is great. <laughs> I, honestly, not just saying it for you. I listened to a bunch and bought oh, book when I was oh. when I was starting. Um, um, but I'd say the best resource is an experienced person in the area that you want to do, whether that's a guide you pay for or if you find someone generous enough to give some of their knowledge or time to you. Because um, it's so, spe- I mean, you know, it's so specific each area, like the technique and the fish and all these things. Um, so I think I'd, I'd say the best resource is much more localized in that sense. Love it. Single best tip. For new noobs, maybe if you could go all, start all over again, what would be the one piece of advice you wish you'd had? Look for the pressure points of the reef, of what's going on. Um, it took me forever to figure out exactly what's going on. All of the fish are there. Like that's where everything's at. Nothing else matters but that one little pressure points. And if you don't know what I'm saying by pressure point, if you're really starting out, there's some sort of a structure, whether it's a pile of reef, a big rock or an island or a bami, and the current's going in one direction and at the nose of it where the current hits, there's a pressure point, usually with bait fish on the surface. Uh, here in Indo, there's there's lots of surgeon fish as well, sometimes rainbow runners. And underneath that is the pelagics. That's where you'll find a lot of the Spanish. That's where you'll find doggies. That's where you'll find the biggest reef fish. It's um, focused on the pressure points, I think. That is magic. That's a standalone video right there, I reckon. Maybe that's yeah. one. We're going to spin that into one probably up on the Noob Spiro shorts. Thank you very much for that. Last question, Lenny. Uh, you've been an absolute legend too. Um, as I mentioned, aquaticapes.com, but aquaticapes pretty much everywhere, eh? YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, 
And yeah, uh, YouTube mostly. That's my main thing. I don't go on Instagram much and TikTok. I haven't posted in a year. YouTube, YouTube. Nice. All right, cool. Um, last question, man. What does the spearfishing experience mean to you in, uh, in one sentence or maybe two if you have to? In one sentence, the spearfishing experience. Oh. Was this question on the sheet you sent me? 100%. <laughs> the spearfishing experience in one sentence or two. Um, I feel like I'm not going to give a good sentence. I just love spending time in the ocean and seeing, understanding how the ecosystem works and seeing the wildlife do their thing and... This is a run-on sentence, but still one sentence. Um, and yeah, like it's it's fun to like learn the the hunting techniques, and it's I don't know, it's a very satisfying and rewarding thing in a way that's you can't really understand unless you've actually put in the time to reap the rewards, and it does take time to to reap those initial rewards for sure, but um. I can't imagine anyone doing it and not like loving it after that, that initial time of sucking and learning, you know, it's an incredibly cruel question to end a, a long interview with because it forces people to try and boil down what is a, an, a, an amazing experience into a very short one or two sentence structure. And it's mm. quite difficult to do. You did a well, you did a very good job of it, Lenny. Uh, mate, I've had a blast chatting with you and, um, we're going to chat again in the future when you and your buddy Evan have got something ready for us. So, um, but mate, a pleasure to have you on the Noob Sparrow podcast and um, keep doing what you're doing. Aquatic Apes on YouTube, everyone. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. Hey, legends. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed Aquatic Apes, Lenny Logsdale. He's an absolute legend and makes Indonesia sound like a, a really cool place to go and have a look at for, for enjoying our spearing, that's for sure. Um, hey, in two weeks' time, come back for key, take, key takeaways, froth moments while learning to get better at spearfishing, all on the Stradbroke Spearfishing course. It was an absolute pleasure doing it. If you want to check out those courses, go to spearfishingcourses.com.au. As usual, this podcast is powered by patron legends. Go to patreon.com forward slash noobspero. You can support the podcast on an episode-by-episode -episode basis. Join about 40 other legends up there helping to put fuel in the noobspero outboard. Hey, that's it for me. Thanks for listening, guys, and uh, always love the reviews. So keep them coming. I'll see you in a fortnight. This review for Adreno.com.au from Brett, particularly the Woolloongabba Adreno Superstore. I started spearfishing more regularly recently and Adreno not only has everything I need, it has Paul. He's super helpful, knowledgeable and kits me out each time with gear that I actually use. Paul has also provided me with heaps of tips that have made my dives better and more fruitful. He has the friendliest vibe and I would happily empty out my account upon every visit. I never write reviews and I used to buy gear online, but have now found in-store is much better. That review from Brett, it's up on Google if you want to check it out. Adreno.com.au, one of the longest running partners of the Noobspero podcast. Use the code Noobspero to save $20. In-store, online, go to Adreno.com.au. Massive superstores, huge range of gear. Check it out. Absolutely mint customer service. Specialty spearfishing equipment, elite spear gun performance components, unforgettable reliability. You want to find out where to buy this? 
punchandneptonics.com and shop at the best US spearfishing store, neptonics.com. Free shipping to the lower 48 when you spend over 199 and you can use the code NOOB10 to save 10%. This is your chance to save DOSH, buy deadly good gear and experience A-grade customer service. Will you shop at the best? Visit neptonics.com. Use the code NOOB10 to start shooting 35-pound muttons tomorrow. Actual performance may differ from advertisement. Please refer to terms and conditions to see if you're eligible to be a legend-like track. This advertisement was not even endorsed by Jerry and the team at Neptonics. Hoorah and God bless you.